0: Hello. If you are hearing my voice, it means, sadly, that I am dead. Not by my own hand, I hasten to add, though after the last five years where the show plumbed the sub-basements of hell, who could blame me if I reached for a bottle of strychnine, or ran a warm bath while sharpening a razor blade, or even bungee jumped without, you know, the bungee. Nonetheless, I am dead. Those who proclaim the word of the woke are to blame. There are only so many nonsense tweets about how after flux, Doctor Who will never be the same again, and in a favourable way, mind you, before a man's heart simply gives out. So, while I lie here a-mouldering in my grave, my podcasting soul goes marching on. And in that vein, welcome to the latest episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. While I quietly decompose, Mark, Richard and Dave hold down the fort and bring to you another stellar entry worthy of our wonderful listeners. So while Europe burns itself to a cinder in temperatures nudging 20 degrees Celsius, we down here in Australia are shivering our asses off through a winter that can only be described as cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Who wrote this copy? So what better way to shrug off those winter blues than by sitting yourself down in your favourite chair with a warm cup of cocoa, or, for our more refined listeners, a cheeky glass or ten of red, and snuggle up to a very special 42 to Doomsday staff Christmas party in July, but released in August. In the fag end of the Chibnall era, nothing, and I mean nothing, makes any sense. So, strap in as the lads discuss their visit to the moving picture theatre to see some hardcore 60s science fiction action in the shape of the 1960s Peter Cushing movies restored to their 4K non-canon glory. Check out the balls on those movie daleks, hey? The three chaps who podcasts then set sail on the high seas, reminiscing about their buccaneering days as they discuss ye old Arr! video pirate days of yore. The Triumvirate of Doom then shift their dread gazes to analyse several target books featuring the Doctors Moriarty, That's right, The Master, and none of that Missy nonsense before rounding the episode out with a special mid-year Christmas stocktake of our legendary Fan Wank of the Year awards. But remember, that which is not dead can eternal lie, and with strange eons, and the return of David Tennant to his seat at the right hand of RTD, even death may die.
1: I'm Mark.
2: I'm Dave. I'm Richard. We're back on the couch aren't we fellas? How are you? I'm great but I didn't think we needed all that intro. I thought given our first topic you'd just say welcome to podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to podcast magic. It's 42 to doomsday. (laughs) After time. The AMSR version. Hello I'm Mark. Uh, How are we boys? Good? Yeah I'm well.
3: Excellent.
2: Yeah, thank you for this back on. Why are we gathered here today? Christmas in July. Mm, that's right. We, we want an extra 42 to doomsday office Christmas party. And the only thing you were missing is actually the big KFC bucket. And, uh, of course, snow. But uh, the other thing, of course, is we saw each other a week ago to go and do something Doctor Who-ish. Mm-hmm. And, and at the pub afterwards, there was just all of this golden content. Champagne Doctor Who podcasting. <laughs> and we thought... <laughs> Well, we, we should be turning the mic on. <laughs>
1: we should, but Mike wasn't there, unfortunately, that day. But uh, actually, he was there. He, w- he, he was there, but you, you had to get back to the country. You had to get back so. to the country, Hello, yes. Mike, if you're listening. Yes. Before we dive into the conversation, actually, uh, we had some feedback on our Drag to the Archives Part Uno uh, for 1982. Now, there was a mention of the um, Mary Rose. Yes, I've seen the Mary Rose. Well, Rob um, said something which was slightly incorrect. And Andy Taylor, who advises me, I'm not in Duran Duran. <laughs> I'm an archaeologist. I
3: was actually about to make the Duran Duran I would great. never
1: do that, Richard. Come on. He says, uh, basically, great listeners always, guys. I uh, hate to piss on your chips, though. The Mary Rose didn't sink on her maiden voyage. She had been in service for 32 years. So uh, thank you, Andy. And I think also Jed Sweeney
2: corrected us. And you, Dave, as well. I think you, you pinged us after that episode and said... Uh, I, I didn't correct you. I just said that I had seen the Mary Rose and affirmed what you suspected, which is that there's not a lot of it left. <laughs> the spine is sort of one side of a bit of it and all the decking everything. simply completely gone, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I still think it was the Daleks' that sunk it, but anyway, we'll move on from that.
2: So, yes, thank you, Andy, for
1: letting us know and, of uh, course, correcting us on that important fact. So, a couple of weeks ago, we went to see the Dalek movies, didn't we, guys? Yes. As David alluded to before.
2: The first time I seen them on the big screen? Yep. Yep, likewise. likewise. No, the, uh, the, the word went out from Richard here that said, the Aster is playing the two Dalek movies on a Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Who's in? And we all said... We are. We yeah, did. they're
3: run a few locations here in Melbourne. I think um, they're on at the Cinema Nova and they're on up at the Cameo in Belgrave, plus a couple of others. Yeah. So hopefully people got an opportunity to go out and see them. i I think they are only on that particular Sunday, so if you missed them, bad luck. Given the attendance, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, actually, that did really surprise me, how few people were there. I probably wasn't expecting a packed cinema, but I thought I would see a lot more familiar fandom faces than ultimately turned out for it. So where the hell were you?
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, and I think it's a reflection, maybe, on where fandom is in the two respective countries. I've been looking at Twitter, as I'm sure you guys mm. have, of a lot of our mutual friends who have been going on and seeing these sessions in the mm. UK, and there are sort of multiple sessions across multiple towns. Yeah, a, a lot of the photos I've seen of the audiences have been quite well turned out as yeah. well, yeah. whereas ours was very, scant. very
3: scant. It was yeah. very sparse. I was yeah. very
1: surprised. It reminded me, actually, of the Power of the Dark screening that I saw where, basically, it's a very similar audience. So It's not like, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, it used to be massive audiences for Day of the Doctor and all those things, and now it's sort of a small subsection of uh, fandom, as it were. But, I, um... I don't know, it
3: could be those horrible seats at the Aston, maybe. But, <laughs> yeah, <so we're, laughs> I mean, yes. I uh... know they're trust classified, but my so, goodness.
2: Yeah. I can remember, Richard, when we all went to see Lawrence of Arabia at the Aston. Oh, and, um, three and a half hours. That, that was <laughs> very painful minutes. by the end of it. But, look, before we get into what we sort of thought of it, something that i thought was interesting with the audience is sort of looking around but also listening to the reactions there were very clearly people like us who were very familiar with the movies mm. and had watched them a lot as children but not seen them in the big screen or not seen them for a long time mm. there were others who probably you know maybe saw them once mm. but there were people there clearly who had never seen them before and mm. i don't think quite knew <laughs> what to expect <laughs> and uh look i i walked out with a big smile on my face when the Credits started playing, I was grinning like a happy fan.
3: They're probably a little bit cheesier than I remember. They are definitely cheesier than I remember. I I haven't seen them for a while, but look, I really enjoyed them when I was younger. I remember getting up at about 4.30, I think, one Sunday morning to watch the first one. Wow. Um, When it was on, this would be late 70s or very early 80s. Channel 9 had it as their late, 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 late movie. (laughs) Probably just before Rex Humbard's Hour of Power or whatever it was of religious programming on Sunday morning. But I vaguely remember it being on TV, I think, sometime in the mid-80s. I didn't see the second one until the later 80s. It was on one Saturday afternoon. I think 7 or 9 had it. I watched them a few times in the intervening time. I had them on VHS. I remember when they came out on DVD. And look it was cool to see them again. They're actually pretty fun little movies. Yeah. yeah. I'd probably say when I was younger, I probably preferred the first one. I have to say seeing them now, hmm. I got a lot more out of the second one. Yeah. I think. It's probably also because the Dalek Invasion of Earth is ultimately, I think, a better story, probably, than the Dead Planet or the Daleks or whatever you want to call it. So but it moves at a much faster pace as well. Yeah.
2: My note was very similar. Like you, Richard, I watched them a lot as a kid. Uh, we hmm. had the Dark Invasion of Earth 2150 AD. On on VHS, dubbed off the, I think it was Channel 9, screening. And I must have been even watching it this time. I could sort of remember where the ad breaks (laughs) came (laughs) in. So it it was very familiar. And um, the the first movie was a regular borrow from the video library when I was a kid. So I was very familiar with them. Like you, Richard, I walked in thinking the first one was the more enjoyable. And Mm. I think as a kid, that is a more colourful exciting yeah, yeah. sort of adventure, and that, yep. that certainly was my memory of it. Probably makes better use of the colour palette, I think, maybe, than yeah. the second one. I think so, and I think it works really well in that respect. Yep. But But you're right, as an adult, I think... There is a bit more going on and more character and such as it is, and and more adventure in the second one. So I walked out thinking that was the better movie. Mm. Um, they were both really fun, really entertaining. Like you say, they are aimed at a lower age group than I remembered. Yes, and they are cheesier than I remembered. Yeah. Uh, so that that was interesting. And as I alluded to before, there were certainly some people in the audience who were watching some of those moments, not knowing what to expect, and just sort of like, what the hell's going on? Having like go a laugh, there, you know, yeah. which is perfectly fine. There were some having a laugh at it. There were definitely some having a laugh with it. Yeah, um, but I did hear a couple of
1: what the hells <laughs> from, from behind us a
2: couple of times
1: and there was some clan that said this is Titus exactly the same time as Peter Cushing I'm putting my hand up for that <laughs> 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 yeah, that was me that was me <laughs> can I ask a question though um, had your parents had seen those
2: films can you remember I mean your dad was a keen Doctor Who fan did your dad go and see it? He must have been the night before we went to see it he was having dinner with the family and I said to my dad oh I'm off to the Astrodome I to seen the two Dalek films I've never seen them on the big screen hmm. before and he sort of looked at me and said, oh, I've seen them on the big screen back when they first
1: came <laughs> out. <laughs> so, yeah, he would, he would have been sort of yeah. 12 or 13 and yeah. went and saw them at the cinema, so yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, your, your mum was a keen Whovian, was My mum was a
3: fan. Was did she she'd fan? probably seen them when we were watching them? I probably chucked them on on VHS at times. Yeah. I would be lying if I said she would have made a dedicated trip to go and see them <laughs> or anything, because I think mum probably really lost interest in Who probably around the end of Hartnell. I think. She jumped that early. Yeah, well, I think. Well, see, <laughs> well, once, once
2: they changed the Doctor, the rest was not canon. <laughs> well, no, well, see, no. the thing is, no,
3: see, Mum watched in, it, in, in, it.
2: This, in just Lloyd destroying the canon, the yeah, continuity. Yeah. yeah,
3: Well, I think it was probably more a case, Mum was a teenager when they first came on, when Who first started here, about yeah. in 1965. Yeah. So, you know, by the time, I think, because there was a bit of a gap, I think around somewhere around the gunfighters. Okay. Somewhere around there. And I think, you know, that probably coincided with, you know, finishing uni and getting yeah. yeah, a job and whatever. So you didn't have a video recorder taping and bunch no, of Funnily you... enough, no okay. Okay. sadly. But yeah. uh, she'd have certainly seen them. Mm. But um Dad I don't think really wouldn't even have registered with Dad probably. But uh Yeah. <laughs> so that's my
1: dad. Oh, yes. Because he actually went and saw it. I said to him... Cause I mentioned the same thing. I said, I'm going to see the Dalek sure, movies. brought him a Mark. And uh, he said he, he had memories of... Uh, my nanny used to run the uh, lo- the local scout trip. He was a member of it. And she oh, took yeah. all the kids out to see the Dalek movie. Wow. Yeah, the first one. Not... In colour, amazingly <laughs> enough, in North Wales <laughs> in the mid-60s. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's got very oh, fine oh. memories of it. You <laughs> know, just
2: <laughs> amazed I had power.
1: It was. It was well, actually well, Wales like was cold. backward yeah. enough. Yeah. Even the movie
3: was still in black and white. It anyway. was, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I think I mentioned in one of the Drag from the Archives episodes... Um, Available from all good record shows By the way I made my dad buy it uh, The first dark movie For $25 Right In Canberra Because We are up there on holiday And I was supposed to go To the Doctor Who Club Of Victoria Christmas Party 85 Because it was showing All seven episodes And of course We were stuck in Canberra And I guilted the hell out of him and I saw the Zix rental. You didn't of go it. to one of
3: those other sort of video forums up there. Did you no, no,
1: no, at <laughs> all. Uh, so basically, you know, I got I got the video, and to me, it was the it was the first time I'd seen. The Daleks, you know, i yeah. would never seen the TV serial. So basically, to me, it's almost like the special edition of the TV version, mm. where it's got colour. Daleks are really impressive, as you said, the sets it, are fantastic. It moves a lot faster. It moves a lot yeah. faster, you know, it's basically, those two movies are really essentially the greatest hits mm. of those serials. When I first came to fandom and sort of reading some articles and things like that, these things were reviled because of the, the non-canon nature of it, really, you know, and... And he'd call their main protagonist Doctor Who. Obviously, these people hadn't seen The War Machines yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but these things were... Even John Pertwee was bagging the crap out of them saying they're bloody awful and and things like that.
2: No-one really knew where these things fitted in in Doctor Who back in in the day when the show was basically just a TV series.
3: Yeah. So what was the change? Do you reckon it was probably when they revisited Dalek Mania probably in the mid-90s?
1: I think it was when probably the DVDs came out. And maybe because it's I mean VHS doesn't it, was, it doesn't show you things in the best possible light but when mm. the DVD started coming out and potentially some of the Blu-rays and the Dalek Mania appreciate you know that, that documentary is very well done yeah. maybe there was a shift you know and, and I think you know, DWM did a, a, an archives
2: on it in 84 and, yep. and then a they did like comic strip yeah. and,
1: then, and then they did this really good uh, yeah. in,
2: in 96 I think it was a summer special and really went into it so also when the show's off air and you get used to you know, BBV was making their stuff mm. the Shakedown was coming out the new adventures were coming out This sort of idea that okay, you can have in inverted commas non-canon stuff that's valid. Mm. I I I think was all all, all part of it. Um, I will say though, like you talk about the Daleks looking great, they do look great, and the cleanup done on this was really really good. With the exception, I think you were going to say this, Richard. Yes, the the cleanup is so good that occasionally it is to the detriment of the movie, like the strings on the flying saucer. Yes, they are painfully obvious. Painfully obvious. Um, Some bits of the set that looked great on the TV suddenly in, you know, 4K cinema, you go, that is a piece of cardboard, isn't well, it? paper mache, yeah. yeah. I
3: very, very obviously a wooden flat with, like, in- yeah. inaccurately applied contact or whatever across it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think probably also just back with the Dalek Mania thing, the late 90s was probably also when you started getting movie Doctor Who-specific merchandise, because there were ah. companies who also worked out that you could just licence the Daleks. Hmm if you did them from the movies because you don't have to the BBC you know, hmm. the payments to the BBC are different. Oh, okay. So there was actually a range of movie Dalek merchandise. Better revival you think? Yeah. That's so off as well. that probably helped. But yeah. I mean I certainly had some of it. Yeah.
1: To be honest, if you're gonna show these to kids You'd probably want to show these movies to them as opposed to the original black and white serials because they are, you know, colourful and they're lost to engage the kids. With yeah. Them.
3: I watched the first one with my son. I he probably only did about six or seven. So that's mm. years ago now. But I mean he, he really enjoyed it. We I don't think we watched the second one, but mm.
1: I preferred the music in the first one, but the, mm. I think we we're watching the ending of the first one. I was sitting next to you, Dave, and it was very it was shambolic the ending of the of the first one and and, like, Roy Castle's doing this really, like, bad impression of
2: Tim Book Taylor's
1: I'm a teapot dance, you know. And <laughs> it just really, it's like, oh, how do you finish
2: this off now? That, that actually reminds me, I'll just mention here, I, I'd forgotten about this, but uh, a few of us back in 1990 did a convention or attended a convention, Mark, you helped to run, called Enlightenment, where Robert Jewell oh, right, was yes. a guest. Yes. And, of course, he was, at the time, considered the Dalek operator. Hmm. Um, Unfortunately, because he moved to Australia and John Scott Martin didn't, I think, despite the fact Robert Jewell actually did more Dalek stories, John Scott Martin was considered the Dalek because he lived in the UK. But anyway, Mm. um, Robert Jewell was very, very frank about what he thought working on these films. Um, He said that it was a much better paycheck. Mm. Uh, He he did point out that for the second time, he was the one that had to be in a Dalek casing on the Thames. And uh, he (laughs) said he was the one that was in his bathers being pulled out of the Thames in that Dalek casing. But he had some very um, honest words to say about both Roy Castle's and Bernard Cribbins in terms of what he thought of them as individuals, mm. and it wasn't flattering. Not that they weren't pleasant people, he just said that they were um, slightly crazy and manic and um, weren't taking it as seriously as he would have liked and some of the ac- right. other actors would have liked. And I guess if you're stuck inside a Dalek costume, you kind of want everything to happen quickly and get out of there and, mm. and under student lights. If you've got someone kind of taking the piss all the time, yeah. it probably didn't go down that mm. well. But but on the point you raised about, you know, the difference between the, the show and the movie, look, I agree, this is more colourful, it's a bigger budget, it flows much quicker... Mm. But I also really noticed how many of the really good scenes and moments from the serials aren't actually in there. Mm. So you look at something like the Daleks and you've got that really good conversation between the TARDIS crew about can we ask the Thales to risk their lives to help us? Is, is that a morally valid thing to, to do? And then the whole discussion about you know, can pacifism become a way of life? Is that Are there things worth fighting for, does appeasement work? Mm. And all the stuff that's going on in the context of, you know, a generation that remembered the war... Mm. And then that's about two lines of a cheesy yeah. dialogue <laughs> in, in this, yeah. um, and, and even stuff like just building up how terrifying Scarrow is, Susan's escape from the city into the TARDIS, and all the rest of that. It takes the time on TV to build up and be really effective and really good, mm. interesting, thought-provoking dialogue. So, as an adult, I do think the other, the, the, as an adult, I do think the TV versions. Hold up, far better, and and, and the stuff cut is mm. stuff that we've lost. It's not just padding, yeah. But but absolutely, I mean, the the pacing is really really good. To to the point, I think. The, uh, the, the Dalek countdown is about six minutes to go as the file group is still trying to break into the city. So, And uh, we it's didn't not notice that. It's not 24, is it? It's <laughs> not a real time. No, and yeah. um, there were some definite um, laughing moments. I think some of the Dalek dialogue just going on and on got yeah. a few giggles or, or, or the very earnest Dalek countdowns yeah. definitely got a few giggles. <laughs> the moment when they revealed the Daleks were going to fly the Earth around like a spaceship, clearly some people who were not familiar with the story just could not believe that that was a plot point. Um, the other point I just wanted to make, if I can continue, Absolutely. is during lockdown, I made a bit of a thing, because, of course, our lockdown in Melbourne lasted for about two years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and, oh, come on, it's about 14 years. And yes. that's, that's not an
2: yeah. exaggeration. No. Um, I, I made a point of sort of going back and watching a lot of older films that I really should have seen, but hadn't seen before. You yep. know, Bridge Over the River Kwai, oh, yeah. Great Escape, stuff like that. Yeah. But I also watched a bit of stuff that was contemporaneous mm. to this so stuff like the Pink Panther yeah. Doctor No yeah. and when you watch those and then watch Doctor Who and the Daleks mm. you can see that actually the movie is very very uh, representative of where British film was at the time yeah. like the music in it that seems very odd now yeah. is very Pink Panther it's very Doctor No mm. the way it's filmed the way the colour palettes are used yeah. the, the pacing it, it it really is. particularly that first one really is a product of British cinema in that moment. So I think mm. it needs to be appreciated in that context as well.
1: Now, a quick question though, they've got Ian and Barbara in there, obviously. Massively different in terms of portrayals from the TV counterparts. Would they have been better to have created new original characters instead of just having, you know, Ian and Barbara sort of transposed on the big screen and, and counterpointing William Russell's brilliant portrayal as opposed to Royal Castle's very different portrayal? Or <laughs> being a bit too precious about
2: it. Well, it's interesting, given that they do create their own character of Luis. Yes. in the second one, and she has about four lines, if that, yes. across the entire movie. <laughs> um, look, it's it's clear that the star of the movie is the Daleks. Mm. And not Peter
3: Cushing, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. and, and P- Peter up. Cushing
2: sort of you know the the, the, the second tier, mm. and then everybody else is sort of the third yeah. tier, whereas in the TV series, you know, R- William Russell was kind of meant to be the star. Well, he really is
3: the star of the early episodes. He definitely it,
2: is. It, yeah. ex- exactly, so I think that... To make the Daleks the star, you've kind of got to diminish the companions. And if you're cutting stuff out, so, you know, Barbara having very earnest conversations is really interesting and really good character moments, but it's just not appropriate when you just, like, let's get to the next...
3: 79-minute film. 79-minute film, and it's like, right,
2: let's get back to the Daleks. Let's get back to the Daleks. I think that it's kind of irrelevant because they are a third-tier contributed to the film
3: mm. Mm. the
1: second film like you i'd watched it on telly and i was trying to pinpoint when i saw it i reckon it was around the
3: time the abc were doing those saturday afternoon repeats about 87 i, 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 I was going to say 86 or 87 it could yeah. have been
1: two times where i watched it so it's either the 9th of february 85 or the 11th of january 86 is when actually, i think it's actually actually the 85 one was actually in regional uh, in wollongong so maybe Rob saw that then. But I think when I saw it was on the 11th of January 86 on Channel 7. Well, me and my mate went and bought some tapes. Tape it. That was the first yeah. time I'd, I'd seen the, the second
2: film. My, my memory is that it was a very hot day and a very hot afternoon. Yeah, so it must have been January. Sorry, yeah, yeah, that
3: that, that day does day. fit. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That does fit. I'm pretty sure that's the one I saw. Okay. Just, I'm sure it was an afternoon. I think you're right, Dave, because I mean, yeah. it was quite hot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I reckon it's probably
1: the same one. Yeah, okay, good. Bit of research then might have actually (laughs) paid out. So uh, there you go. But back to the music, Dave. I think the music on the second one, I felt that was really out of kilter to the film compared to the music from the first one. The
2: music was good, and it's very Britain 1964-ish. Does it always fit with the style of the movie? No. Like I mean, there's some stuff where they're doing the Man march and Robberman are marching, and it's like, okay, that fits really well. Then there's other stuff with like, oh, we need some music here. Play the Robo man march again.
3: Well, we can only pay for a few pieces of music. It, it, it
2: does feel a little bit like we had seven minutes of music, yeah. and we've got to make it all fit. And so yep. sometimes there's some quite jaunty stuff over the top of some quite, you know, <laughs> it's dark a, bit, it's a
1: bit of music gold, sort of almost really. But when the first mm. film, you know, there's some definite pieces that are quite, you know, mm. you stick in your mind, like the opening theme, you know, and then the um, the Dalek music, you know, they stick in my mind. Where the second one. It was, apart from the intro theme, which is basically like a really bad sort of James Bond. Well, that's the thing. The, the really? first
2: movie, the music does mm. feel like somebody trying to do a riff on Doctor Who. Yeah. Mm. A- and those themes are very much in there, the Dalek themes. You say, the second one is unrecognisable from Doctor Who. Yes. It, it's, it's fine, yeah. but it is very much its own yeah. thing. Mm. What do we think of Peter Cushing as Doctor Who? Certainly better than John Hurt. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was taking that
1: Hartnell's grandfather, but without the crotchetiness, but mm. then it's sort of... It turned up to 11 in terms of eagerness and yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, look,
3: as you said a minute ago, Dave, look, he clearly is, he's not the star of it. The Daleks, really seeing the Daleks in color is, is the real, you yeah. know, and lots of, you know, not two or three plus some cardboard cutouts, seeing lots of Daleks
2: and black Daleks and red yes, Daleks. And that's, yeah, that's right, yeah. that's
3: that's really the main aim. So, look, I thought, look, he was quite good as a generic doctor type character. I actually
2: think it gets a little bit of a harder edge in the second
3: one. Yes, and and, and that's quite good. Uh, the way that he deals
2: with um, Philip Maddock. Oh yes, He's yes really actually, good. And, yeah. and, and and how young does Philip Maddock look? Oh my world? God, yes. I yes. know the British accent coming through. Yes, oh. yes. <laughs> boy, very, very much so. Uh, but but the other moment I like, and it, it's one that got a genuine proper laugh for the right reason out in the audience, is the bit where he and David are tracking along, and he says, "Now, nah, for my calculations, correct, it's about three miles." Then the Roman comes along, and he shoots him, and David shoots him, he falls in the river, and then he just sort of. Dust them. Put the dust on the back. As I was saying, about three months <laughs> Yeah, still more convincing than
1: Jody Whittaker, yeah. I reckon. But Cushing, though, know, he was actually quite happy to do that role because he'd been yeah. in the Hammer for so long and sort of got typecast. So to do that role, he's trying to do something different, you know. And to... and I thought the performance, as you said, was
3: was perfectly was fine. fine for what, was... what he had to do exactly. in the movie. And look, it's not a character piece, so no, no, no. I thought he was fine. I thought he was great,
1: you know, and. Then, Cribbins again has to do a comedy moment, you know, with the pills and the Robo Man. Yeah. That, that was that was really like, oh, it's like a Roy Castle bloody
3: ending again. Again, he's there ostensibly for the yeah. wider moments, you know. Yeah. And, you know unless you got a knife being thrown into a Robo Man and whatever. So, with Ray books, the boy yeah, in the neck. That's right. So. <laughs> You know, and probably, a, they, yeah. and then they have they have to do that in such a way to get past the certification. So,
2: or stuff like the guy in the credits teaser who pulls over and the TARDIS dematerializes and looks does does straight at the yeah, audience. Does
3: that?
2: <laughs> Which yeah, got a real laugh and again <laughs> for the wrong reason. For the wrong reasons, probably. But look, look, as, as you said, Richard, that's the stuff that I'd forgotten. Uh, it was very fun to see that stuff, but mm. look, I just enjoyed it from a piece of nostalgia. Mm, I mean, yeah, they were just fun. It was, it, was, fun it was a fun afternoon. It was a fun afternoon. It was, it was good
1: to catch up with some mates and just watch it and just genuine popcorn moment, wasn't it? Really, yeah, it was. sort of it sitting was there. Of fun. I thought the direction was fine. And Jed Sweeney, um, one of our listeners, actually had a, a, a reminiscence here of the Dalek movies. He goes, uh, "I went to a cinema in Bristol one Saturday night." where they had a special screening of both uh, Dalek films and they had j as a panellist who totally ignored the non-smoking signs all around the cinema <laughs> and looked up several times in the evening. It was around early 1985 and I asked him if there's any news of USA development with the program to which he said, I had no idea. That was a screening of the two films in Britain with uh, j had nothing to do with it. He was there anyway, probably claiming it
3: as an expense. I was about to say, charging, charging so right? so, yeah. yes. yep.
1: Dalek films, definitely got up in my estimation and a lot of fun. Likewise. Good afternoon. And now, speaking of illegal videotapes, on to our next subject! Now, following on from our nostalgia fest regarding the Dalek movies... Dave, you had a really interesting topic
2: that you proposed a few weeks ago, we thought we we're going to give it a bit of a run here. We have reflected a few times in the conversations that the Checks, Lies and Videotape doco on the Revenge of the Cybermen DVD is one of my favourite ones, because it <laughs> talks about all the old days of how we got to see shows, and has the whole thing about people getting tapes out from Australia. And we sort of was talking about it and said, well, let's have the conversation about the other side of that conversation, Yes. about what it was like growing up in Australia, and how we got to see old Doctor Who mm. and particularly new Doctor Who, mm. which was quite a bit of an adventure at times. And Mark, you can probably kick us off because you were sort of you know a veteran of this by the time. I even yeah, got into well, that's right. in, in fact, probably a number of the stuff that we saw at our first meetings when we joined the club was courtesy of you and your pen friend. Marks been Enterprise. Why do I feel so guilty talking about <laughs> this? <laughs> the statute of limitations is over. Has, okay, say. I don't think anyone's coming to okay, you Okay, yeah, right? Okay.
1: So how it all sort of kicked off was basically you, get, you used to get data extract and had a pen friends section, and then you write off to different people, and they say looking to swap, you know, material, yeah. right? And they left it very broad, and I said, look, mate. You know, obviously ABC showing a truckload of stuff. How about we do the swapsies? So I had a number of pen friends, but the one that was obviously I suppose the most the most prolific one, but we were the Lennon McCartney really of uh, <laughs> of the video trading days, was uh, my pirate Pete. But essentially, it was it was that. It was hi, what have you got? I've got this. Okay, you yeah, have this three hour tape. So I'll put on, say for example, I'll swap you season twenty five. Monster r- on. <laughs> and I'll send you back season eleven or Ark yeah. infinity or something like that. But there was some. Situ- situations where I used to go to Doctor Who club meetings and of course they were showing copies of tapes mm. and these are BBC um, run off from the archive copies they were completely I remember when The Wheel in Space was found in early 84 going to a Doctor Who club in Victoria meeting and they're showing that episode and I think it was even before it being returned to the archives <laughs> I think because the video got out the they were about
3: like 10th generation by the time they filmed oh the that's why wife. I'm
1: wearing like coke bottles for glasses now because you know <laughs> but I used to go to the club meetings and watch these. the quality was either 10th generation or just completely
3: appalling. Yeah, okay. I, me- I remember seeing a copy of the 10th... Oh, that was shocking. At the yeah. o- it literally was in a snowstorm. It was terrible. Yeah, I-, I remember
2: that exact same copy. And <laughs> you couldn't tell the difference between the snowstorm scenes and inside the base. They were terrible. No, terrible. And then
3: I remember I got a copy, a better copy, a much, much, much better copy from someone who shall remain nameless. And people, I was getting inundated with people. Want, oh, make no. me a copy of the oh, It's really, really good. I want that tape you showed at the meeting. Yeah, I did sort of make a few copies for people in exchange for um, other material, but...
1: And I remember at the time, you know, obviously things tapes back. There was a situation where I remember I had a copy of Evil of Part 2. I dubbed it off, obviously, sent it back mm. to Pirate Pete, who then had another pen friend in Australia, who actually was a friend of ours mutually. We just didn't know we were both oh in the same contact. So essentially, instead of him asking me for the episode, it actually went back to the UK, <laughs> got dubbed down... And then came back to him. Didn't know. I mean, but the tape test flying around the place. I remember at the time, you know, he just went from, I've got it. Okay, where can I get better copies from? Yep. And I think the sort of the holy grail of episodes was definitely, this is before the 1991 yeah. screening. Yep. And War Machines. And I think I got War Machines in 99. And the Ice Warriors I got as well. But we'll talk about that later.
2: Yeah, I can certainly remember that. We, 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 we will yes. talk about yeah. that. I, I think what was really interesting to me when I look back is, I look back to my first... Club meetings when my dad was bringing me along in 1987 88, and the screening of old Doctor Who was just as big a deal as the screening of Mm. new Doctor Who. So, we would go to a club meeting and they might show something like The Aztecs, a very dodgy copy of The Aztecs, but a copy nonetheless. And I think that was the first Hartnell I ever saw properly Mm. at at a club meeting. But then they'd also have part one and two of Dragonfire, Mm. and that was as big a deal and as Mm. unfamiliar because we just didn't see these new seasons on the ABC for two, two and a half years yeah. until they'd been done. So getting a copy of that mm. was really interesting. I want to talk a bit later as well just about how that changed our reaction to some things. But but yeah, like in, in the, for the UK, okay, they were getting all the new stuff as it was screened. Obviously, it was shown in the UK. They got to see it. And they were getting from us old stuff. Yeah. Whereas we were seeing, you know, the purple years on high rotation, mm-hmm. the first half of Tom high rotation. Yes. Even some later Troutons as we know, got repeated in the 80s. Yeah. But... New stuff, McCoy stuff, was almost impossible to see.
3: We'd Cost, slipped to, I think we'd slipped to 18 months behind the yes, UK, yeah. I think, by that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and even yeah. longer for yeah. season 26,
2: I reckon. Season 21 actually was actually fairly close,
1: except yeah. they had that stupid gap when they were, had transport issues. But but also,
2: just to add as well, the Colin era, mm. to my memory, wasn't repeated for a very long time. No, it wasn't. In no. fact, I don't think it was repeated until they did that famous 93 <laughs> said at 4.30 in the morning. Reports. Yeah, no, oh, probably not, actually. You know, but I th- because, cops are, because copies of Trial mm. were probably as rare and hard to get a hold of as copies of The Daleks or The Invasion. Well, it's yeah. funny.
3: I remember we screened Trial, at a, and this would have been 93. Early 93, like, before the video uh, team came was out. It was actually, no, it was actually late 93 when the video team came out. Okay. Um, but we had a packed room yeah. watching it because there's people who had either just never seen it. it had come obviously on board a little later, or had only seen it once and were desperate to see it again. Yeah, eighty seven, eighty eight, Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And you know, okay, yeah, it's a trial, but but um, it, it, it was yeah. as rare as anything else. It, it was. I mean, there was that whole thing, I and mean, you would remember when we were running the club in the 90s. You know, we'd say, "Oh, we're going to show a couple of Hartnells at the next meeting," and suddenly your attendance had, had just doubled because um, yeah. there was still all these stories of people, have, you know, only ever seen once on a tenth generation copy ten years ago, mm. hadn't worn out on VHS yet, um, and and were desperate to see.
2: And, and that also informed the way that I think our meetings were run back in mm. those days because sort of there will be the monthly or bi-monthly just social media where there might be a tape put on, but there will also be, you know, hanging out, swapping magazines, chatting all that sort of yep. thing. But then you guys would run dedicated video days yeah. where you just hire one or two rooms at Melbourne University, for example. Yeah, and yeah. I can remember going along and seeing stuff like the Daleks, the Invasion, mm. um, some Tarrant Experiment was one, mm. but just all of these older stuff. The ARC, I remember watching in Somebody's Lounge Room, um, but but going to these video days, and you did some cyber theme days where yeah. that was the first time I saw Tenth Planet Moonbase, yeah, that's right. um, that. Yep. wheel in
3: space, stuff like that, and yeah. Well, another one actually, just to jump on, I remember, and it was one of the very first because I, well, I must have been I was a probably a lurker around fandom initially. I didn't really probably really come into fandom properly until probably the early nineties. But I'd sort of lurked around the edges of fandom for probably four or five years prior to that. And I remember there was a meeting and it was actually in the centre of Melbourne above the old mind game shop and they showed Deadly Assassin. Yep. um, Which at that point I think hadn't been on in Australia at that point. The ABC, bless them, um, showed it on a Saturday afternoon about three or four months later. But at that (laughs) point, um, Deadly Assassin hadn't been on. And I remember the room when that, that was absolutely, that was standing room only. Mm. Um, It was like a real sweat box because they showed all four episodes back to back and we sort of, all, everyone was crammed in there like sardines watching this crappy little TV. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: wonder
1: where they got that copy from. I don't was know. A, was
3: only, I mean, it might have been taped off, you know, dubbed off the UK transmission. Well, well obviously must have come yeah. from the UK. There must have yeah. been a UK or, or a screening somewhere, um, yeah. you know, unless it's off American PBS or something. But yeah. but, but um, I, th-
2: I think that was the same night they showed Time and the Rally Part 1. Because it, yeah. it was certainly
3: one of those two mind
2: game yeah, meetings. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but again, that sort of shows that Stuff like The Dark Invasion of Earth, The Deadly Assassin. Yep. But Time and the Rani mm. was all considered, like, rare, valuable yeah, stuff yeah. that you hadn't yeah.
3: seen. Yeah, I think that was their thing. Yeah, I think there was a note down the bottom saying something like, if we're still going strong at six o'clock, uh, there's a special surprise or something. Um, and, yeah, I think it was the first couple of McCoy episodes, I think. Mm. Yeah. Which, which sort of cleared the room. but. <laughs> <laughs>
1: because yeah. I remember the first sort of uh, tapes I was getting was Trial of the Time Lock, I got those, and they had The yep. Invasion of Earth, and then obviously that, that, those stories as well. If I look back on it now, and so, not my behaviour, but I sort of like feel a bit guilty because you know, obviously some people were really desperate to see this stuff, and I had a lot of this stuff, and I just and people go, oh can I borrow, you know, and
3: I'd do copies for selected people. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't advertise it, you know. Yeah stuff off, like I said with that copy of Tenth Planet I had, and I got a few others at the same time Um, I was actually speaking to a chap at the time he had obtained copies of all the Extant episodes from the BBC for research purposes and this individual who I I, Ross, if you're listening, had managed, was in contact with him and had had managed to get copies of all all these beautiful black and white stories um, pristine copies Well, I and I sort of thought this is an amazing deal because all he wants is Pertwee's
0: yeah <laughs> yeah
3: yeah and I had these and I made the mistake of course of showing them at the meeting and whatever and of course then it was for the next months it was just can you make me a copy of whatever can you do me a copy of this I'd really like a copy of whatever it was so I got to the point I was just like look, well, just leave me alone look I yeah. haven't got time to be running video machines and that's one of my abiding memories of somebody sort of on the other side of that equation
2: is my dad and I would you know Part of the challenge of fandom in those days was find some kind soul yeah, who would, who, run who, you would off, yeah. who would run you off copies and yeah. uh, look look shout out to our now departed uh, Daniel who yeah. would be very happy to run tapes off but but again you think about today's you know streaming instant gratification mm. it was okay here are three hour VHS tapes um you please do me the censor rights the Ice Warriors. And whatever, and then you'd wait four to six weeks until you saw him again. And the next meeting. At the next meeting, and then you'd you, you, you know you'd get your You're tapes. Tra- and yeah. it must have been, we weren't charging. No, I mean, oh, I'd never heard of anybody.
1: No. You, charging. No, oh, like, you, you
3: weren't. No, no, I don't. Although know. having said that, I did actually swap. I remember when the trading cards were out. I found a bloke had a couple of the autograph ones. And well, I did actually swap him for oh, well, yeah. <laughs> material for a couple yeah. of I mean, cards. not like the UK, have made documentary people
1: like, you know, giving 15 pounds an episode or something silly like that. Yeah. I've mean, never heard of that happening over here. It was just basically <laughs> some yeah. of the time they'll run it off, potentially. So I want to ask you two questions. So when you were on the club in the 90s, UK TV started showing old Doctor Who, right? Did that sort of knock on some of the the attendance as well in terms
3: of that sort of the uniqueness of the old material. Fandom went through a lot of changes in the 90s anyway, you know, we sort of the show got cancelled and then there was the, you know, hope around the telling movie and whatever and then that sort of slowly dissipated. But I I do remember, and, and this probably sounds a little callous, but I do remember looking at the BBC release schedules. And going right, they're releasing whatever. We better show that at a meeting before it <laughs> yeah. comes out on VHS, so we can get one more run out of it. Because look, there were fans who used to come to the meetings who obviously just wanted to sit in front of the stories with other fans and just talk about them as they watched them. Yeah. And then there were you know fans who wanted to didn't really want to do that. They just wanted to come and socialise. It also
2: changed the things that were in demand. Yeah. So for example, right. as the existing troutons, they came out quite early in the run because there weren't many of them. So if you wanted a copy of the Crotons, you could either buy it or, you know, dub it from the video shop or whatever. Yeah. But some of the stuff that wasn't coming out, like for example, Invasion of the Dinosaurs part one, hmm. um, a lot yeah. of that Colon stuff that didn't come out early early on was still in high demand. I mean even when trial came out, it was a hundred dollars a tin. That was still in demand. So there were still rarer things, and certainly loose episodes with, I think the things that became really quite rare. Well, so you would
3: remember when they did the thirtieth anniversary screening here because the ABC showed they showed an unearthly child across yes. the, the four nights I remember in DE there was a big push actually to screen like four loose episodes so they wanted the surviving episode of, of um, Web of Fear it was basically whatever wasn't on VHS yeah. I think it was the episode yeah. of Invasion of the Dinosaurs and a couple of others that obviously didn't get off the ground yeah Reign of Terror
2: was very rare cause Yeah, that, that was one of the very last VHS releases yeah that's right yeah it was too wasn't it Yeah. Really? and can I just make the point while we're talking about some of this older stuff before I think we're going to flip over to the newer stuff it did change our view I think of a number of stories because mm. we were watching a number of cases very very poor quality mm. tapes so Tenth Planet was very cool to watch but mm. you couldn't really get a lot of the subtlety or the nuance out of it because it was
3: I remember that there were all these fans that run
2: forward with these little tape decks yes. and they'd have them sitting in front of the, the, the TV yeah, like, they'd get, the yes, yeah. get their own And yeah. uh, yeah. another example is I remember watching a screening and a meeting of the gunfighters mm. and this was a multi multi generation copy now we've talked about how as you have each generation of AHS, the picture degrades. Imagine the song yeah. The song and the, the audio also degrades. So, look, look, you can take or leave the Ballad of the OK Corral from the Gunfighters as a good or a bad experiment, but that's fine. But when you've got that sort of as a fourth or fifth or sixth generation <laughs> dub, and it's sort of... Like, it's just actually really hard to appreciate and enjoy. And so I know that the Gunfighters had a bad reputation... Partly because of UK perceived fan wisdom. Yep, correct. But I think it was also because the copies we watched, you couldn't get you just couldn't appreciate them properly. Yes. Or even something like The Romans. Again, that's very reliant on very subtle performances, mm. some gags, some some puns. And if you're watching a copy where you're watching the doctor like that And it's warbling. And it's you warbling. Yeah. You're not going to appreciate yeah. that story
3: nearly the same. No. No. I was just thinking when we did the goodies podcast, remember when we watched Superstar? And you oh, get to that bit at the end where Bill's on top of the pops, and it's just this, and because the copy we had originally was was multi-generation, and it was just this just haze of colour and yeah, just oh, that that, that,
2: and that gave me a headache the first it time was,
3: I saw it was it was horrible. So for about two minutes or three minutes, you just think, what the hell is this? Yeah, just yeah. this distorted sound and colour. Yeah. yeah, it was awful. Sound like that Max Headroom? <laughs> tell <him> it's <laughs> <sense>. you know a <laughs> <laughs> rock. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: before we go on to the McCoy stuff, did you want to tell the Ice Warriors story? Because okay. I can remember going to the meeting and seeing the yeah. uh, the copy of the Ice Warriors complete with time code, at yeah. <laughs> the bottom.
1: It's Actually when I was, was when I first started working and uh, uh, my uh, my pen friend Ramey and goes uh, Mark I got the Ice Warriors. I said no, no, surely not. Anyway, a couple of weeks later it turned up. So I said, okay, well, I'm not going to share this one around because we had the convention coming up. Yep. We'll have it as we'll hold it over for a, yep. a debut, as it were. The Ice Warriors was found in '88. And that took a while to sort of hit the pirate circuit. I mean, for <laughs> me, it took about you know a year, or early right. months to, Cause, to cause come Because what out. was in
2: London? January '90? I right. think it was yeah
3: '91. Right. So I got I got the tape. It would have been your second year, yeah.
1: Yeah, I got, I got the tape then. So we, we sort of held that back for the date for right. like the convention show. But look, I imagine it was around the other traps as well. But but, yeah. but as
2: an attendee of that convention, I still got the the program somewhere. Yes where the, the front cover is a picture of, from the Ice Warriors that says, the Victorian debut <laughs> of the Ice Warriors. Now, this was nothing more than a dodgy bootleg copy, but we were, you know, 10,000 miles from the BBC, so who cares? We can, like, yeah. advertise and sell tickets
3: yeah. to, right. to watch this, this yeah. bootleg yeah. show. I remember yeah. going to one of the... And it must have been probably the 89 DWCV Christmas party. Mm-hmm. And the afternoon programming, and I remember some wag making the point that that had made your job so much easier, Whoever was on the committee at the time. The afternoon programming basically was Battlefield and Curse of Fenric. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the place just just stopped. There was nothing else on that afternoon. No. I, and I think there was a couple of attempts to run panels against them. No, didn't but no one went me. to them. No, it never bothered me. Yeah. Just... So the point that I
2: wanted to make about watching the McCoy era out here was how disjointed my viewing of that was, mm. because obviously the club couldn't show everything in advance of the ABC, mm. and so I saw a lot of McCoy very much out of order. I remember seeing Dragonfire before I saw anything else. Then I saw Time and the Rani Part 1. And then I think I saw Paradise Towers and Delta as they were screened by the ABC. And then Remembrance, obviously, straight after. Yeah. But I saw, for example, Greatest Show in the Galaxy before I saw Silver Nemesis. Um, I was seeing Battlefield okay. and Fenric probably before I'd seen anything else. It well, was probably while. that same screen. And it was that same screen. Yeah, I
3: remember going to one, they showed Greatest Show and Silver Nemesis. That was at Melbourne Uni, yeah. And I saw them. That was months and months before I saw them on the ABC. Well, I don't or think two the, on the ABC.
2: Well, I don't think the Club showed Remembrance because that was brought out here yeah, quite quickly. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember Happiness Patrol being shown until after it was screened here, but it right. might have be. been. But another example was: Do you remember that making of feature about Curse of Frederick? Oh yes, I can't remember what oh, the UK show it was. Yeah. It was like Beyond Two Thousand or
1: I think yep. it was. Yeah, it was one of those like points of view sort of thing. I think. I think yes. Yeah, and, and and they uh, did. I, I had that. Yeah, because he take that for me and sensitive. Yeah, yeah, and I remember
2: you, you screening that, and so yes. we, we saw this making of the Curse of Frederick yeah. probably about two years before it was screened I'm, in Australia. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, that so, so, the point I was I was making, and I want to just expand on this with some other shows. One thing that I kind of regret about that is, yes, I got to see some McCoys much earlier than I would have had I just been watching the viewer mm-hmm. at home, but I didn't get to really discover the McCoy era in the way that was intended in order, in a sort of a a logical sort of thing. It was just bits as we could find it.
1: fragments almost. Mm.
2: And as I continued in fandom, that was something that really continued on to other series. Mm. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation is one that I particularly want to highlight because we were three or four years behind the US for a while. mm. And so at the time when I was watching season one of TNG on um, terrestrial broadcast... Occasionally, at a club meeting, someone would go, hey, I've got a few episodes of season five. So I can remember you know, going from watching something like Hyde and queue to watching Unification. Yeah. And, and and even even as a sort of a 12-year-old, yeah, also yeah. Sort of, you know, going, this is a series that completely gets a lot better yeah, as, a, as, as it goes on. Well, I
3: mean, Trek, then, Trek sort of hit the wall then at that point too because uh, they then, Paramount, obviously, twigged yes. what was happening at, at meetings. And, of course, all the clubs who were showing, you know, hey, we've got the new episodes all had to stop oh really yeah okay because we were getting
1: when we were in the DWCV we was started screening them during my time because a friend of mine had a friend in the UK who'd get them from America he had pretty good conversion equipment so that was actually spot on as okay. opposed to what you used to see with camera copies yeah and that was like really destroying yeah. so
3: basically paramount though yeah, cease and desist. There was a club here in Melbourne that received what I believe was a, a cease and desist letter that we are aware that you're showing copyrighted material at your meetings.
2: Well, there was also one I believe a Paramount rep turned up to the meeting. Yeah, I, and 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 I believe stood up and said, "If you press play on that, yeah, I don't know
3: whether that was in Melbourne or whether that was somewhere else. I, I've heard that story as well. Right. Um, I mean, look, it was part of a bigger thing by Paramount might, and look, someone who was in Trap Fandom will probably be able to fill in some of the blanks, but I think there was a period where Paramount was sort of looking at that fandom was sort of an untapped revenue stream, you know, and we'd have licensed fan clubs and this sort of thing, and they were starting to go down that path and starting to engage a little more with fan clubs. Look, Obviously, look, it, it didn't come to anything much, but it certainly did put the wind up. But of course,
2: Star Trek was, at that stage, a multi-billion-dollar franchise. Yes. Not not unlike Doctor Who, which was now off the air. Yes. But, but, again, my experience of watching Star Trek The Next Generation was very, very disjointed because I would sort of mm-hmm. see what was on terrestrial broadcast several years behind the US. Yeah. Every so often someone would have a tape of, yeah, of, of a season, of four or five episodes. Yeah. Now, we talk about multi-generation copies. Add to that multi-generation and conversion from NTSC <laughs> NTS- to PAL, NTS- yeah. NTS- <laughs> yeah. and that that could be some quite uh, nausea-inducing yes. yeah. stuff. But but again, um, with that, and, and also with Babylon 5...
3: Well, that's actually the one I was going to go yeah. to, because you go forward a year or two again, you then get to something like Babylon 5, where I reckon I saw the bulk of it via imported tape. Because then you get into, you probably get into the mid, eight, mid-90s mid where you start getting those taping services where you send us X amount of dollars a month and we'll tape whatever you want, you know, because there's all these sci-fi series coming out. Now there's VR5 and Mantis and The Burning Zone and Babylon 5. did you
1: 5 find
3: and... about these sites? So where were they advertising? Well, well where were they not advertising, Well, I think say. a lot of them, I suspect a lot of it was word of mouth, let's mm. be honest, because it's pretty... Uh, <laughs>
2: pretty
1: illegal.
3: You're sort of skirting... Uh, yeah, Christ knows how many uh, regulations. But I had a friend who was bringing in, he was bringing in all sorts of stuff. He'd just get boxes of tapes sent over and he was just giving them X amount. You know, this covers your tapes and this covers your shipping. I reckon I saw nearly all of Babylon 5 through imported tapes because we were way ahead of, you know, this was way ahead of what was on Channel 7. You'd sort of get the phone call. It was like, there's a code 7R at my house yep. this evening, which is great. He's got the next batch of tapes. So let's go head down there. And then we got to Series 5 and we did the first batch of tapes for Series 5. And then after that, it was, oh, look, these tapes are here if you want to have a look at them. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then you probably go into other ones. like So you then get into stuff like Enterprise and those sort of like the later 90s series. I think Firefly, I think was one of the last ones or probably the last one i, I think that, that certainly i remember seeing through that sort of service
2: well, well just just to go back to babylon five very quickly yeah i, I must admit i watched a couple of babylon fives when they were shown terrestrially here and unfortunately the first one i watched was by means necessary oh. so i decided <laughs> i was not going to keep watching this but then i saw a couple of yep. the later seasons that you had at someone's place and so yeah thought, okay maybe this is good and i think your words were look if you're going to buy a couple of season ones, buy Babylon Squared. Yep. And I did, and I was hooked, and I sort of then had yeah, to catch yeah. up. But but you're right, I saw a lot of the later Babylon 5s in very dodgy yeah. copies. And just to continue with what you were saying about it going on with there, a lot of the Trek series then started to come out on video yes. before they were shown commercially here. Yep. So I can remember going to the video shop and just hiring the whole yes. of Season 7 or, of DS9. You were one
3: of the specialist video importers. Yes,
2: but he, yeah. he was getting all the, all the UK releases months before they came out here. So we were paying $40 a tape yes. to get those ladder B5s and, and DS9s. And
3: you would remember the weekend we went to Sydney, remember? We went down there, we bought the war machines on VHS. We were the only people in the country yes. with the war machines. We got them because he, he just got the box yes. in and we bought them and we basically went from there into town to get on the train to go, because it's the day we went on the train. Got on the train to go up to Sydney, and we walked into whatever, I can't remember it was a mini convention, I think they were running that weekend. Yes. And we went in there, and it was sort of like, we're the only people here with the war machine tapes. Do you want to sell them? And (laughs) and we did, because we had a club table there, we were selling a few other items of merchandise, and I went around basically everyone in the group, bar one, who wouldn't part with his, (laughs) and we sold them for like $20 profit or something, I think on top of what we paid for them. And the great thing with that was they were all the first, and I'm sorry to anyone who bought it, oh, they were all yeah. the first releases
1: that were no good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, um, yeah, at the end. That's right, yeah.
2: Yeah. We all have the memories of lighting up in the dark yes. in the middle of winter and tele-movie, getting the yes, movies, literally being pulled out of the shipping crate and yep. handed over to ravenous fans. Exactly. exactly. Um, but, but I guess what, what we're saying here is that by the late 90s, although Australia was still a long way behind, there were now... Different ways and more professional yep. ways of getting your tapes, and I think a lot of us also had a lot more disposable income, or at least some disposable income. Yes. So we were willing to pay 40 bucks a tape, which is like when you think about it, that's 20 bucks an episode mm, for, yes. for B5 and and, and later Trek. Mm. The final iteration, I think, before, before you can sort of do any other odds and sods, was at some point then the internet started to become the thing. Yes, and, and I can remember the first things that I ever downloaded off the internet were season three of Roswell and season six of Buffy yep. from a site called Roswellian Hellmouth. And these weren't torrents. They were literally just each act of the show. So they were broken up into files at, at each ad break, which was each of those files was about five meg. Oh my God. Yeah. And you just, just go on and just download these five meg files and, and, and watch these. And... And then a couple of years later, uh, the West Wing was the first thing over
3: Toronto. When South Park had its first really big explosion around the start of Series 2, yeah. and South Park was just the hottest thing ever, there was a site, they had real media versions of them. Oh, yes. And they were about... Probably 30 meg, and you would sit there. And this is dial up, this is like yes. 99. And I remember sitting there on dial up, and you just leave the thing and you're just watching it waiting for the phone line to drop when you lose <laughs> the whole thing. Yes, yeah, so if somebody rate you halfway through <laughs> the download, you have to start again.
2: Yeah, but
1: that just goes to show the progress, though. You were changed from sending you know physical media mm. around the world, yeah, taking weeks as opposed to now it's this contact, as it were, yeah. of um,
2: immediacy. By the time we got into season six, season seven of The West Wing, I had the expectation I could go home from work on the day that that was shown in America and I could download a torrent of that and suddenly this whole thing of okay we truncated our wait for McCoy from years to weeks Mm -hmm. we were now truncating down to hours and the whole thing had sort of changed and VHS was wrapping up the DVDs were coming out and sort of that whole phase of fandom I guess was basically at an end.
3: It was still going on. I mean, remember all the stuff around Game of Thrones when they were, watching well, the internet had slowed down pretty much, when <laughs> <laughs> the Game of Thrones had dropped and everyone was torrenting it. Mm. You had to get like Foxtel here had their special Game of Thrones pack or whatever it was, mm. where they guaranteed you could press play as soon as it had stopped showing in the US and you could stream it straight away. But, and
2: and mm. look, the ABC realised here with Doctor Who around about the, um, the Matt Smith era, mm. they realised that if they got that straight out from the UK and just put it on their iPlayer mm. at about four o'clock in the morning here, people would watch it and and yeah. you know people it, it proved that fans had no particular desire to get dodgy and illegal. No, exactly. Right. They want to see if it. They just want to see it. Yeah. So if you yeah. put it on the ABC's iPlayer, that becomes the most watched show mm. in Australia yeah. for forty eight hours, yeah. and the torrenting goes way way down. Mm. But the moment you say no, we're not doing it. We're going to show it in two weeks' time. Your torrenting goes straight back yeah, out.
3: I remember when Rose leaked. Yes, leaked in inverted commas. <laughs> but depending on which side of the fence you sit, I'd actually gone away for the weekend, and I remember some of you bikes had obviously found the torrent, got it, and had had a group screening. And of course, I got home to all these emails and messages. Richard, where are you, Richard? Are you? <laughs> oh bother, I missed it. And um, and I remember this would be probably one o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. Found a couple of torrents, queued them up. And then I was sitting there and I was like, okay, it's got about an hour and a half to go. Yeah, I can sit here for about an hour or so while they download. And then it was sitting there and they finally came down. And this is 2.30 in the morning, I think, by the time I finally got a complete copy. And I was like, well, it's only 45 minutes. Yeah, I reckon I can sit down and watch this. Yeah, and, and look, I can remember when the Exton season was out
2: here, sort of waking up blurry eyed on a Sunday <clears> morning, rolling over, turning the dial up on or whatever sending the torrent of the episode to go, <laughs> then sort of going back to sleep so you know that by lunchtime yep. you'd have the episode of Doctor Who to watch.
1: I'm trying to explain dial-up to children and yeah. my kids, and they just think you're download and yeah. stuff like that. It just goes show you the advances in technology. Just right. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't think they're going to do a Chex lies and videotape about torrenting at all, because really I think it's not, apart from saying I oh, you know, got up a dial-up and that was really it, I think the, the days of tape swapping and everything like that has yeah. got a lot of more nostalgia because
2: it, this stuff was so out of reach, didn't it really? Yeah. But it was so personal as well. Yeah. Like if somebody took the time, and, and again, this isn't like copying a file to a flat thumb drive No, this no. is this,
3: this done real time. It's done
2: in real time. So if somebody's copying nine hours of Who for you, let nine hours of W yeah. go on for you. So yeah. it wasn't very personal and...
3: So, so that's that progression. Thing? You know, you remember the day when you first got a video and it was all exciting and you could watch stuff on tape? And then there was the day you got the second VHS. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mark, nah, true or false, did you have a sequel booster? I yeah. did.
2: <laughs> was that strictly legal? Anyway, it was another thing <laughs> to
3: talk about. And, and I, I think it also had a bug-busting chip also in it, didn't it?
2: break <laughs> make the final point, because... A lot of what we've talked about has been very nostalgic and they're very fond memories. And, and, and it, it was a very exciting time, you know, this idea yeah. that you go to the club meeting and someone was bringing for you a copy of the Web Planet part. Yeah. Like, like yeah. that was exciting. But I am also very envious of the people that are coming to the fandom now. And they go and they buy a Blu-ray box set of yeah. the season. And they can actually watch the season as it was intended to be watched, mm, yes. one story after the other, and discover these eras yeah. properly. And there's really been no era of classic Doctor Who that I discovered as it was meant to be. Yeah. Um, because, look, Davo, I remember going out when I was very young, Ditto Colin, and by the time we got to McCoy, as I said, I was watching it out of order based on what we could get what copies could of, think, yeah. and the old stuff we watched again as we got copies of it. So yeah. I, I, I do regret uh, not being able to discover the show in right. that way. In a
0: logical order. and anyway. um, progression.
3: Yeah. See, yeah. I probably had the other option. See, I started watching it in a logical progression because I started around the start of Tom, and then probably around the time we got to the end of the Davison era, by then I was in Year Ten, I was working after school, so of course I was watching it on tape. They were all disjointed, and then you go forward a couple of years again, and you're starting to see them at fan events. And then of course McCoy for me is just a bit of a blur to be honest at the time. Mm. Um, probably probably like that anyway. But
1: uh... <laughs> that sort of yeah. patchwork exposure to the show. You're right. It would be nice to watching a logical flow, but then again, we are sort of going, "Oh, I'm watching a Hartnell. Never seen a Hartnell before. Oh my God, we're going to Tom Baker. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's." You're sort of getting that the that, that gamut of the show in parcels as opposed to that, that logical flow, really, isn't yeah. it? Really, yeah, or
2: even look as has been discussed before that that regular Doctor Who thing that we had in Australia yeah. where they would show most of season 21 and then Caves of Andrasani hadn't been cleared so look we'll just repeat season 18 Yes, Caves of Andrasani still hasn't been cleared so let's just throw a few more pertwees on yeah. okay now we'll go back and repeat season 21 because we have finally cleared what's left of Caves yeah. after <laughs> the census have had their answers <laughs> but, but again but yeah. like, that's what it was it be season 21 season 18 yeah. season yeah. 7 then season twenty one again. Yeah. Season eight, nine, ten. Season twenty two, etc. Yeah. Et and then
3: don't forget the regular repeats of series twelve.
2: Robot again.
1: Yes, here comes
3: robot again. Or when they were doing them, remember I was showing them at about four o'clock in the morning. And every time that they just keep resetting back to Revenge of the Cybermen, yeah. <laughs> they've had <laughs> I mean, to get rid of those rights. Clearly, they had like three or four repeat screenings of yeah. that left on the rights ticket. Yeah. So. Exactly,
1: yeah. This is a really enjoyable topic to talk about because it's the old days, you know what I mean? And life is a lot simpler. That old analogue way of doing things, yes, it was a bit more time consuming, but uh, I'm glad I was there. We could have a separate conversation about pirating computer <laughs> games, Richard, but we're not, you know. <laughs> you know.
2: And, and we were glad you were there too, Mark.
1: Oh, thank <laughs> yeah, you very much. exactly right. And, and, and thank you, Mark,
3: for all your hard work and keeping the video. Video afternoons at the club, well, well provided. Thank for. you very much. i also <laughs> like to call out, thank you, Pirate Peter. I like to be a
2: pirate, a pirate's life for me. All my friends are pirates, and the same on the BBC.
0: I got a jolly Roger, it's a black and white and fast. So get out of your skull and crossbows and I run it off your mask.
1: And now it's time for Target Book Club. This is where we uh, take a Target Book of choice and we uh, read it. We'll have a chat about it and uh, we'll have some thoughts. Now, Dave came up with a great idea about having it in a transmission order sequence. So the theme of of today's uh, Target Book Club, of course, is books featuring the master. Mm.
3: Obviously the decent ones.
2: Decent books or decent masters?
1: Well, actually, yeah. it's a very obvious... I was going it. to say, I went
3: for the telemovie novelisation, Marks. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: so,
1: in uh, transmission order, I think, Richard, you're up
3: first. Yes, I am. I didn't do that. I actually did a book called Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, which is, of course, a novelisation of Colony in Space. Yes. Um, I might talk about the book for a minute or two and then perhaps talk about the story. Sure. The book is actually... Um, If you discount the three 1960s novels, the Hartman novels, Mm. um, this is actually only the third or fourth target book released. So there was uh, Doctor Who and the Autumn Invasion, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, um, and then this and Day of the Daleks were the next two. Okay, all right. This is very early in Mm. the run. Um, Obviously, it's by Malcolm Hulk, um, so you do get all these... Nice little interludes and things in the story as well. The interesting thing with it is probably off the bat, because it's so early in the run and none of the other season 8 stories have been novelised, they actually take it upon themselves to write a new intro for Joe Grant. And it's not quite as bad as the one in The Daleks. (laughs) 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 Because it runs in much the same way. Look, her uncle gets her a job at unit and whatever, but it pretty much glosses over the whole fact that the three previous stories never happened or if they did she wasn't a part of them right and it ends with her because the brigadier just sort of shunts her into these really mundane tasks around the unit office and eventually one day she sort of snaps and goes barging into the doctor's laboratory like you know who are you and why are you so important and you know whatever just as he's about to fit the new dematerialization circuit he's made to the TARDIS and then the time would send them off on their mission and it actually then the next bit where they land and she passes out during the flight. The Doctor's actually standing over going, oh, look, I'm sorry, I don't even remember your name. It <laughs> um, then goes in, you know, and she has to build this relationship with the Doctor while they're actually investigating the um, the, the, the story, hmm. which was an interesting way to get it going. But as I said, look, because it's by Malcolm Holt, you do get all these little interludes and views into the backstories of the characters and whatever. So, you know, you find out that you know, Earth by this point is completely built up the only ways they can entertain themselves, they either go up on the roof and sort of sit stand in the sun for a few minutes, um, or they go on a thing called a walk treat, where you sort of all these images of like long extinct animals and things um, sort of play past them. And you find, you know, Captain Dent, every time he has to make a decision, he's referring back to what the IMC rule book says, because they have a, a manual that covers every situation. And because he's, you know, reasonably high up in IMC and quite successful, he lives in a four-roomed apartment. IMC found him a wife. You know, his kids go to exclusive IMC schools. He's very much a company man. Right. Um, and then, you, on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, some of the backstory for some of the colonists, you know, who live in these tiny, you know, oppressive little buildings. You know, they work in these terrible jobs. They never see the sun. They never see natural light, anything like that. And they, this whole design, it's very 1970s, this whole desire to go back to a simpler existence. So, of course, they all band together and put all their life savings into buying some rickety old spaceship and take off to colonise a new planet. And you get all these nice little sort of interludes and stories and that for mm. each of the individual colonists. Moving on sort of to the story, I don't think I'm betraying any confidence by saying I don't think of Space is that highly regarded <laughs> amongst fandom and look, apologies for anyone who really likes it. I really like it. Oh, OK, sorry. <laughs> Well, when you watch it on, on TV, it is a very drab story. Visually, it is, yes. Yes. In the book, look, it follows most of the same beats. IMC are attacking people with the fake lizard and you are trying to drive the colonists out and whatever. It really feels very much like just rereading it here. I, I did watch Colony in Space a few years ago, but reading it here in the book, it does really feel like the Master is just kind of tacked on to get it to six episodes. Mm. You've sort of got all the stuff happening with IMC and the colonists, and then suddenly the Master turns up and that's the excuse to to basically give it the last two eps. It doesn't really end, because, okay, they destroy the doomsday machine, but there's actually no resolution between IMC and the colonists. Yeah, okay, you've got the IMC guy who, you know, has a change of heart and wants to come and work for the colonists and get a better life for himself. They don't actually resolve the mining claim or anything, so you're probably left with the idea that once the doctor leaves, IMC are probably just going to send another shipload of people (laughs) (laughs) just, just to raise them all. I mean, look, it does have other questions as well. There are a few plot holes, like, IMC want to come and land right next to where the colonists are. They've got this whole other planet that they could go and mine other uh, continents and whatever. And, you know, look, the Master clearly wants to be with the Doctor because he could go to any other point in history and try and take the doomsday weapon, but he chooses to do it there. So, look, um, it was an entertaining read. but because it's Malcolm look, it's a lot better than probably the bog standard yeah. Target books, hmm. get to some of those Terrence Dix ones being churned out in the late 70s that are clearly being written to a page count, you know, I mean, he's writing one a month. So, yeah, look, it was an entertaining read. As I said, I don't think it's a great story, but I had fun reading it. Three Doomsday Machines out of five.
1: Because <laughs> I've got a scene in there as well with Time Lords, is that right? When they're sort of looking, yeah, sort of the give start, a backstory. Yeah, there is this whole pretty yeah.
3: prologue at the start where yeah. the, the young archive keeper is there with the old archive keeper, and mm-hmm. the old archive keeper is old and forgetful and inclined to lose his train of thought. And is, is that the
2: old, the amazing security system where you have to touch two buttons at yep. once? Yeah, yeah.
3: And, <laughs> and you know, they go to look at this thing. They go to pull up the record for the doomsday machine, and the master's just left them little note saying, "Thanks very much, love the master." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to pull in, and then they sort of think about, well, how can we stop this dastardly thing? I know that doctor fellow probably can help us, but yeah. As I say, look, it was an entertaining little book to read, but, yeah, I don't think it's a great story.
2: Does Hulk have anything much to do with the Master as a character?
3: Not really.
2: Which is interesting because one of the big takeaways I had out of Colony in Space, apart from all the other reasons I liked it, which I won't go into mm. right now, but it is, for me, a very important turning point in the relationship between the Doctor and the Master. Mm. Because up until then, you kind of get this vibe that the Master sort of wants to impress the Doctor. Yeah. And, and wouldn't mind if the Doctor actually said, you know what? I kind of like hanging out with you. Let's Sorry, let's, let's, let's let's go. Let's yeah. let's join up. And and Doomsday Weapon is very much the one where the Master puts it on the line and says, "You and I could run the universe together. How about yep. it?" Yeah. And the Doctor genuinely stops and thinks, "Well, could I could I do good with this power? Mm. No, it would be evil. Sorry, I'm turning you down." From then on, you get this feeling that the Master actually now wants to destroy the Doctor because the Doctor has turned him down. Yes. And in the de- it's
3: kind of half-assed what he does from there, though. Well, yeah, well yeah, no.
2: Look, Look! it is, because the Master's got to turn up every week and you, yes. can't, you can't kill the main character. But when you then get to the Demons, the Master has no desire to share his power with the Doctor. He wants it all for himself and he wants the Doctor eliminated. Yep. And, and and then his schemes start to become more and more removed from the Doctor until by the time you get to Frontier in space, it's really just, wow, the Doctor's rocked up. That's a coincidence. Yep. It must be 5.25 on a Saturday. Um, <laughs> But, but I, th- I think that it's a really important turning point story for the master. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I so, didn't realise the colony in space was so early in that target yeah. run. I thought it would, was like a couple of years later. No.
3: Surpri- yeah, it's yeah. very surprising. Okay. It's old enough that it got the original Chris Achilleos cover Ah, yes. Um, as opposed to the Later one with the master and the red and the red red and black lines and that behind him. Yeah, Yeah. probably one other thing actually, just talking about the depth of the novel because it's in novel form, you can do a lot of stuff that you can't actually do on screen. Of course, in the novel, the robot is actually kind of scary, Hmm. it's not just a BBC prop with a (laughs) Um, big arm that swings on a hinge. Yeah, pretty much. You know, the monster is actually proper scary when they go into the city and they meet the guardian. You know, the guardian actually rises up as this sort of Wraith-like figure out of the flames, you know, it's not sort of a glove puppet a, on a slide-out <laughs> shelf. Uh, Sitting in the rainbow but, connection. Yeah, There is a lot of that element to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, I really like I like all of Malcolm Hull's books. I'm I, sad he didn't do normal.
1: Now, let's whiz forward
2: nine years to 1982, and Dave's choice is... So I've read Time Flight, which was actually Mark <laughs> your suggestion, and I thought, no, it's it's a good chance to read a story that is not well regarded on screen... Yeah and yeah. see how it comes across on television. Look, this is printed in 1983, oh, so really? a very quick okay. turnaround yeah. from... We're into the
3: photo cover. Well, yeah, we, yeah. we
2: are into the photo cover era, as you can see here. I've got my, my nice 1983 copy here in my hands with a very bad picture of Davidson and a white blob that could be Concord. but I I'm not quite so. sure. yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, and I can just, just tell you, since I've got the hard copy here, yeah. this cost £1.35 in the UK, yeah. £3.95 mm. in Australia, or... One Maltese pound and 40 cents in Malta, apparently. Not quite sure why Malta was worthy of the back well, cover. Was, but
3: is, that, is that a new location to start looking for uh, lost episodes? I,
2: <laughs> I did watch Time Flight. Now, I want to preface my conversation by saying I'm quite a fan of a lot of Peter Grimrad's work. I think he's a really undersung, underappreciated director in Doctor Who. I like a so lot on. of his work. Yep. I think that a couple of his scripts are really good. Mm. In fact, Planet of Fire is my favourite devo story on screen, and... Mm. Uh, that's foreshadowing, maybe, what's coming down the conversation Yes, soon. and
1: an apology as well, Dave. I've got to something coming up. Yet. But uh,
2: this book's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Given the chance to take a story that I think has some interesting ideas, but as one um, book from the 90s famously said, I think it was The Discontinuity Guide, as interesting as the story is in Time Flight... The moment the script had a Concord landing in Jurassic, England, yeah. the script editor should have gone, we can't make this. Yeah, I think
3: I think an actual quote was something like, that would trouble most big budget movies, yeah. let alone <laughs> 1980s Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Unfortunately, Grimwade doesn't do a lot with the story. It really is a beat-for-beat beat rewriting of what was seen on screen. Mm. There's a little bit more depth in a couple of places, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. It's very clear that Grimwade is very entranced by Concord itself. And there's a lot of detail about Concorde, and when they start to do all that, and when they do all that stuff where they're starting to repair one Concorde by cannibalizing the other, he goes in quite a bit of depth okay. there. So it's, it's quite clear that's really what's caught his imagination. But it's very, very simply written. The characters are sort of very, very two dimensional. Professor Hater is just an annoying, crotchety old professor. Yeah. Uh, Tegan and Nissa basically have no characterization at all. The Concorde crew get a few sort of moments of oh, wow, we're stuck in an adventure. This is very weird, but it's very, very simple. Before I go on, just read you um, half a page from, from this book and just sort of get your reaction because given the chance to tidy up some stuff in the story, I'm not quite sure that he doesn't double down here.
3: Well, I was about to say, looking, looking over your shoulder, I can see it's called The Magic of Khalid, so I await the... <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it Bounty. is
2: It is Chapter 5, The Magic of Khalid.
3: <laughs> Shut up, Oh,
2: so you've read it. <laughs> Shura, shura, tamal bulur. The thin, strangulated voice that chanted these arcane words could have been that of Amuzan summoning the faithful to prayer, but it was no holy man who stood before the great crystal ball in the sombre heart of the citadel that the Doctor and Tegan had seen on the horizon, and the power that Khalid called forth was as dark as the granite walls of the chamber where he practised his magic arts. The Doctor was right to fear such a man as this, for Khalid was no ordinary conjurer. He was no ordinary man either, with his yellow oriental face bloated, <laughs> bloated like the body of a drowned dog and gangrenous with age and excess, with broken teeth and rotting gums that contorted his mouth into a permanent leer. His height too, for a Chinaman, if that was his race, oh my God. was remarkable, and his girth concealed by a bright coat of damask as monstrous as the force he involved. Oh. Shirah, Shira Tamal, Khalid called again, and the crystal clouded.
0: So uh, thanks for that,
3: Peter. Wow.
2: So what's interesting with Khalid is, A, they lean into the um, problematic <laughs> racial stereotyping. I, I, I think there he manages to go for Chinese people, Islamic people, and just general sort of Asians as well yeah. in, in, a, in a fairly unpleasant way. But what's interesting is that the novel almost treats Khalid and the Master as completely separate characters. There's no sense there of there could be something else to Khalid. There's no sense of foreshadowing that the master could be involved. He's basically Khalid up until the end of part two, and then he's the master. Although there are a couple of little interesting details there in the book, Khalid's costume isn't just a sort of a, a BBC dressing gown with a plastic mask. It's <laughs> it's meant to be a plasmaton that's materialised over right. the master. So yeah. so when he when he when he dissolves and yeah. you know, the power goes down, he's meant to dissolve, and you get all the green slime. That's meant to be the plasmaton dissolving, not just taking off the costume. Right, okay. Uh, and it also does say there that although he's using the costume to fool the Doctor, which makes no sense, unless he's expecting the Doctor, he's also using it to trick the Xerophon and to uh, help to get the Xerophon on side. So, right. Uh, look, at least there's that some justification. There's yeah, at least uh, some yes. explanation in there. Yeah. But look, the story is quite a... One. The, the ideas are good. I, look, I like the ideas. Mm. Getting involved with Concord was obviously a kind of cool thing to do at the time. Mm. But he doesn't do a lot with it. And it's really clear in the book, especially, that there just, once again, isn't an ending. Yep. Um, you know, there's the very exciting exchange of spare parts between the Doctor <laughs> and the Master. There's a lot of... It's a swap, mate. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of the Master goes in the TARDIS and it conveniently doesn't quite work. Then his TARDIS is malfunctioning in exactly the right way to keep the plot going. And then at the very end, when the Master sort of is bounced across to Xeraphras, it goes from, now he's got the Xerophon machine in his TARDIS, he's unstoppable, to, oh, well, they're on their home planet now, so they'll be fine. And it's sort of no explanation at all. Um, and even right at the end, Tegan... Again, what sort of happens is very, very disjointed because at the one moment you sort of got Tegan just wandering through Heathrow and she hears the call, you know, the next Qantas flight to Sydney, and she's like, "Oh, I remember my life could have been this." But then she comes along and you know, to races to the doctor, and oh, I thought I was going with them, so it's actually not clear.
3: No, he abandoned her. No. Well, well, I don't know. I think that's clear, but
2: <laughs> but Tegan's motivation isn't there. So look, other than the occasional sort of problematic racial profiling, it's actually very, very drab, and. Uh, I'm, I'm quite disappointed by it, I've got to say.
1: I'm actually going to go home and listen to the audiobook for that chapter alone <laughs> and make sure and see
2: if they actually
1: who tweaked re- it. Who reads it? Davison does. Right. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm going to go home and
2: listen to that chapter. <laughs> how, uh, how many takes do you reckon Diva did to get that with a straight face? If they probably
1: just like got the red pen of J&T, said that's gone, that's gone. Yeah. Probably. Oh, my God. Wow. 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 Um, Thanks, Dave. That was top, real. Top, top <laughs> that, Mark. <laughs> I probably can actually.
2: However, before we get to me, well, actually, before we get to you, Mark, I, you know, think that we could do a bit better than you, frankly. And um, if you if you turn over to our, um, our monitor over in the corner, yes? I'd like to. Uh, I'd like you to show me the original forty-two to Doomsday presenter. You know, the old one before he changed his form. Ah, Rob, there you are.
0: Hello everyone, this is my contribution to the 42 to Doomsday Target Book Club. Now, I have been assigned The King's Demons by uh, Terence Dudley, who of course was the uh, scriptwriter for the same story. What can I say about The King's Demons? Of the three two-parters that appeared during the Davison era, it's probably in second or third place. I think Black Orchid is slightly less good than, uh, than The King's Demons. I think rightly people sort of say... That there's not much to it i mean the the uh, the master's plan is small bore uh, in a sense uh, trying to upset the development of democracy or parliamentary democracy or the, the the basic civil rights that we all enjoy today by sabotaging king john and um and uh not leading to the uh, the signing of magna carta um, but in, in watching The King's Demons, it's it's not a bad little story as such, uh, but th- it is it is lacking uh, in, in a certain sense. There's, you know, a lot of things just seem to happen for the sake of them happening. A lot of the character beats seem a bit, or just slightly off, or definitely underdeveloped. Uh, but in reading the target novelisation by Terence Dudley, you do get a sense of the characters now. Dudley has obviously got more space to flesh them out. It's the strength of uh, books or novels over TV that you get a more, a larger sense of the interior lives or interior thinking at least of, of the different characters and their motivations. So renulf Fitzwilliam is less of a, I suppose, weak character and you get a, a greater sense of why he acts the way he does. And, and, and also you get a, a sense of the feeling of betrayal uh, in the novelisation. Uh, he, 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 he experiences at what he regards as his, his uh, close friend, King John's uh, seeming betrayal and ill use of of him and his family. The book seems to stray in between being a children's novel in terms of the, the, sort of the, the juvenile sort of writing, or at times it, is, it does feel juvenile. But at other times, uh, Dudley is having a lot of fun with the language. There's um, alliterations littered throughout, Uh, There's a reference uh, to Tegan, you know, saying that, you know, she was beyond 1066 and all that. Uh, There's a reference there. There's even a strange reference to the doctor lifting up his uh, coattails and warming his quote-unquote bottom against the fire. I I know the production seems to be very cold, but I can't imagine the doctor warming his backside uh, by a fire. But yeah, there there is that sort of childishness or juvenile nature to the writing. And then there's sort of, you know, there there are bigger, bigger, quote-unquote, more complicated words used throughout. So I suppose... Dudley is pitching the story or the novel towards, you know, your more advanced teenager in that sense. Look, it's reasonably well written. I think at times it's probably overwritten. There um, there are passages where things just seem to go on and on. Maybe that is just to pad out the length because, again, it's a two-parter. You've not necessarily got enough material on its own in terms of the script to be able to generate, you know, a 120, 125-page novel that you would have with a four or six, you know, Episode story. I think it's interesting that occasionally you get a flash of the Doctor's thinking. It's typically rare that you do so. I know the new adventures, I believe, or from memory anyway, that they they tried to steer away from having anything from the Doctor's viewpoint. But in a lot of the King's Demons, uh, especially with the Doctor's confrontation with the Master, uh, which results in a sword fight, there is a lot of what you know, seeing things from the Doctor's perspective. And there's nothing earth-shattering there in regards to that, but. I mean, it is an interesting thing to see. I do note, as uh, an Australian, quote-unquote, there is a very odd passage in the book early on where Terence Dudley writes the following passage in relation to Teagan, an Australian, and her characterisation of, you know, middle-ages Englishmen, where she says, and she's comparing them to Australian Aborigines or First Nations people, as we now uh, refer to them, the story or the the writing says the Aborigines back in Australia must have been in 1215 pretty much the same as they were in the 1980s. Primitive and without social graces like chivalry, they killed to eat and not for amusement. I I just saw this and I thought, wow, this is I know this was written in the 1980s. And it is written by an outsider's perspective, a non-Australian. And, you know, in terms of rights for Aboriginals, um, and uh, that sort of thing. I mean, Aboriginals were no longer necessarily thought of as being, you know, primitive or, or, or anything like that. And there, there certainly was a burgeoning uh, land rights movement here and a burgeoning uh, call for more recognition for Aboriginal rights. And certainly the, the, the economic situation, a lot of Aboriginals in Australia found themselves then, and of course today. But uh, it's a very gosh comment for Dudley to have made. And I think, uh, given his time again, I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, have phrased it like that or even just put that paragraph in. It's very odd. Um, some of the characterization of the crew uh, of Tegan and Turlow makes them t- to be completely um, unsympathetic characters. Tegan comes across as just... She she vacillates between being angry at the Doctor and complaining to the Doctor. And I know that's, you know, in some sense th- in the show you, you get that... But it, it just seems to be, you know, redolent throughout that she's just complaining all the time and is annoyed all the time. And there's no sense of embracing the situation as the doctor does and trying to, you know, come to terms with it instead and sort of just whining all the time. And there's a, there's a curious bit uh, at the start of the book for Turlo where... He seems, or the character as envisaged by uh, Terence Dudley, all for law and order, all for an orderly way of life, verging to the point of Turlo coming across slightly as being a bit of a fascist uh, in that regard, but that's just my read on it. Look, overall, I think that Terence Dudley does a a good job turning his script into a more expansive uh, novel. There's certainly, as I said before, you get a chance to look into the heads of the different characters. Uh, They become... In some instances, more appealing, like uh, Ranulf Fitzwilliam, and less appealing, uh, like his son, who just becomes, you know, an honour-obsessed hothead who just seems to want to get himself killed on the end of a sword or a lance, just for the sake of the honour of his family. And I'm particularly gratified that uh, the mother Isabella is given some agency of her own within the sort of, you know, constraints of, of that particular time. And it is interesting, just as a final note. That Dudley has appeared to have done some research about sword fighting, in effect, and the construction of of, uh, of castles in England, and and he certainly knows the politics. And it's interesting that um, the, uh, the you know the, in the popular imagination, King John uh, was a you know a bad king, um, given to bad ways, et cetera, et cetera. But he uh, Dudley, as he as he did in the script, does so in the book. Does try to, I suppose, rehabilitate. King John, how he's regarded in the, in the public image, to the extent that actually anyone today alive knows anything about King John, which is probably even less than what it was in 1982. So look, uh, The King's Demons, two-ish thumbs up from me. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's not certainly not the worst in the range, and I appreciated the fact that there was. Uh, we're moving into an era now with the target novelizations where they're going to be giving the scriptwriters a chance to expand their, their works, and it's not uh, a Terence Dix hit job. Uh, no offence to your um, eternal soul terence but frankly you you're just phoning it in for a large part of the late 1970s um but you know if you're getting paid like that who wouldn't so yeah if you haven't read it or i haven't read it in a while i'd go out and find a copy of the king's demons i think it would be well worth your time
1: thanks rob for that now, I selected another Peter Grimwade tale from uh, later on in the Davison run. So, yeah, you
2: selected my favourite
1: Davo story. I must make an apology here, because I actually <laughs> thought Planet of Fire was your favourite story of the 80s, but apparently it was Survival. Yeah, I've got to apologise for that, because I actually thought it was Tom and Irani, but we won't go into that.
2: No. Um, I must admit I was tempted to read Survival, but I did sort of think, well, look, I'm going to come in and say that I still love like it, I think it's a great yep. book, so it yeah. probably wasn't as entertaining as... um. Smashing Peter Greenway for five minutes? Oh, was, you know, no, it was a bit
3: long, wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> no,
1: no. And look, Planet the Fire" is like in that season twenty-one. It, that run of stories from Awakening to Caves is really quite strong. Ooh. I was hoping for the book to reflect that.
3: Yep. Unfortunately,
1: I'm detecting a bit of a Grimwade bashing <laughs> theme coming up because uh, with Planet the Fire," it's strange. It's a really strange book. takes a lot, long time to sort of get cracking in in the uh, in the actual story you know, in terms of ramping up. And like you, Dave, I was reading this book, and there's some problematic. Passages, book, and I'm going to read you a couple of the more choice ones I pulled out because I was sort of, uh, I just couldn't believe it. But anyway, but Dimitrios continued to embrace the Marble Boy as if it were a lover. And then as a the ship rolled sideways, man and gilded Kuros slid from the deck and plummeted to the ocean bed. The doctor hurried across the sleepy square, looking forward to a cool beer. <laughs> I can't even remember the doctor drinking beer, but did, apart from a couple of wines. Gosh, I, think uh, he, I think he had a mead
2: in the time middle. Like, he did, actually. <laughs>
1: and the rest in the shade. Toshi for the TARDIS, he offered rather half heartedly to his companion. Paradise Lost, continued the doctor. I was thinking of our holiday island, he added ruefully, gazing across the terrain that made the centre of Birmingham look habitable. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another one. Turlo groaned. The doctor had entirely misunderstood him. But how could he explain to the doctor that they must find his home people before the real holocaust began. I suppose you prefer the final solution of the volcano. Wow.
3: Wow. Yeah, wow. Jeez. And there
1: was another one here. The last one I want to sort of bring up was, the Sairns assembled in the in the Hall of Fire thought for a moment that the elders had returned, but none of those arthritic ayatollahs could have achieved. That was some of the more problematic p- uh, passages in the story, in the, in I the actual novelization. The <laughs> yeah, I, look, it, well, look, I think we're sort of getting a bit of a... a, a bit of a, a, a sense bit of a vibe. Here. but I mean, in terms of the, you know, like the <laughs> David you mentioned, it, I don't think time flight really added to the TV story. Where I think in this book, Grimway did try to do some sort of differences between the television, you mm. know, the version, and of course, the opening chapter uh, is contrasting the, the sinking of a Greek of the Greek ship with the crash of the Trion ship on SAM. We all know how great that was on the DVD, didn't we? Really. <laughs> when they did this special edition is <laughs> yes. <was> just appalling. <laughs> Doctor, in, in televised version, the Doctor and Perry uh, leave Sarn on a TARDIS and the ship takes off violently with the Doctor welcoming Perry aboard. In the novel, the story just ends with uh, Turlo taking one last look and it's walking off in the distance. Turlo wants to leave the sands to die and uh, he finds a grave of his parents so he gets very upset about that as well okay. basically instead of being native to the planet on uh, the sands are said to be the trion descendants abandoned on the planet where their memories are raised timonov survives the story thinking that logar hatch he has returned and the last one sort of really sort of hit me was uh, the opening chapters there are parallels between you know Prefer- professor professor foster finding the artifacts in ancient in, you know, in, in ancient greece which apparently Peter Grimway did have a big fascination with ancient Greece as well. But the book doesn't sufficiently capture his uh, Ainley's uh, Jimmy Baker-esque performance as the master, you know, all Slav and, and, and televangelist. Yeah. Uh, but then again, I don't think any parchment could capture that. This is probably the worst book I've read out of all the Target books I've selected. I'm reading it, but I'm not really enjoying it. In fact, my mouth is probably falling open every time i reading a passage like I've just been reading now, <laughs> in terms of how inappropriate it is uh, these days anyway. Apart from those couple of embellishments, it doesn't really give the story, I don't think, any justice. Uh. Again, the great thing about this Target book club, what we're calling it, is taking time out your day, and just putting a book on. And I don't know about you guys, but I was listening to Doctor Who, the Music, Volume 2, getting in the mood with the whole Davidson era, trying to uh, trying to get through the book, which I did. So, yeah, it was a disappointing read, to be honest with you, because as okay. Dave says, it is a really good uh, story on television, yeah.
2: and I don't think the book does it any justice whatsoever. So uh, It does feel as a lot of that real subtlety that's in the series hmm. just hasn't come through to the book, and maybe that's an example of, the way the production team worked and the way the cast worked to really bring a bit more to the yeah. story than what was there. But I think what's also coming through is that, look, I think Peter Grimwade is a really strong director. Mm. I think he's a really good director. I don't think he's ter- a terrible writer. I think his ideas and his scripts, I mean, More Than Undead is a really clever story mm. and *Plunder Fire I really like. Mm. But writing prose is a very different skill. Yeah. And I just don't think he had it. No. And it's not unusual. I think, look, Phil Hinchcliffe is another who I think we all think he's a fantastic producer of Doctor Who or television yeah. generally. He's very good when it comes to story structure and what what's going to work in a studio. Mm-hmm. But his couple of novelizations are very threadbare and look, they you know, even more than Terrence Dix, they are basic, basic novels. And so I think that you know he doesn't necessarily have that pro skill compared to someone like Ian Martyr, yes. who was an actor by trade and yeah. then he starts writing Target books, and we we'll actually discover he's a really good prose writer. So it is a skill, and I think that not everybody had it. But as I said, I'll be interested to see what... In fact, i can pull it off the shelf in a moment. have a look to see what year um, Planet of Fire was published. But this has 85. come out... Was, 85. 85. So, so they both they both come out yeah. about 12 months after they were broadcast. Correct, yeah. And th- that just shows you that clearly Target's remit was get what was shown on screen onto the bookshelves it's as quickly quick you as you can. can. Yeah. yeah. There's no thing about getting that quality and, and I mean the only reason they're not using Terrence sticks for everyone is so they can get even more out as fast as they can yeah, and yeah. so right Terrence you can do six Peter Grimwade can do one Phil Pinchcliffe can do one Ian Meyer can yeah. do one let's just get these out and at mm. this point in this, I, mean, look, I mean look at the cover no effort has gone to that at all it's not even a good picture of Concord no, like no. you couldn't tell that was Concord because you know the, the words "Time Flight" by Peter Grimway are all over the, the nose, across <laughs> the nose cone.
3: So it's probably not as bad as Ark of Infinity. No, but, which, which it, is the low point. It's getting there.
1: I actually remember buying that book actually Melbourne Airport. Oh, uh, really? we shot my my grandparents off in the bookshop
2: there. I actually bought a Time Flight because I had obviously had a plane. It just shows that this is the point where the target range is just churn about and make a quick buck. Mm. And I think that's disappointing. And look, I have ordered, but they haven't yet arrived. My copies of David Fisher's new. Stones ah, of Blood yes. and Androids of Tarot Novelizations. Yes. And look, they are again ones where Terrence Dicks, I think that's the year Terrence Dicks, 10 out of the 12 books that mm. year, when he was doing season 16, yep. 17. And look, they're fine books, but they are yeah, what you'd expect.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I'm really interested to see what happens when they're <coughs> given the proper treatment. Mm. And look, there's stuff like Time Flight and some of these others of this era, like particularly mm. the Davison ones, it would be wonderful to get somebody to have another go at them and do a 200-page novel. Yeah. and actually make something of them, because, well, well like they did with,
3: with Doomsday Weapon. Yeah, yeah, like Hulk did with his books. Yeah, okay. because
2: unfortunately that's that's very disappointing.
3: Which I suppose, just as a final point, is probably where they went later on in the run. Oh, absolutely. Where, where you get in the McCoy era books, where you actually get Rhoda Munro novelising Survival, etc. Or um, Ian Briggs novelising Fenric, and you can, of course, add these all these backstories that will probably cut from the, the televised versions.
2: Absolutely, but even when Terence Dix has given a bit more space to breathe, mm. and he starts doing Ambassadors, Inferno, yep. Space Pirates, Time Monster, and, and clearly the word count is being increased for those ones mm. as well, and suddenly Terence is producing really good, yeah. more, more detailed, more in-depth books he starts to add his own prologues and epilogues. And again, there's obviously a bit more effort put into the range. Mm. They've got proper painted covers again, which look part of that was down to the whole issue between J and T Dave and his agent. But but again, this is this is a low point in the range and it would it would go on, as you say, to get a lot mm. better. Yeah. It had clearly been a lot better, but this is just yeah. churn these things out. Yeah.
1: Before we wrap this up, in terms of the books you read, do you think they captured the portrayal of the master?
2: No, so that was a point yeah. that I was had down as well. Yeah. There is no recognition of who the Master is. Mm. In fact, the novel just says, and the Master turned up, mm. and we just, there's no sense of who is the Master, why is the Master the Doctor's enemy, what does the Master want. It's just as per the show. Mm. And if you're not watching the show and don't know who this guy is, yes. there's, there's almost no description of him. There's no physical description. Mm. What is interesting, though, is that there are a lot of little callbacks to Logopolis. Uh, for example, when they're changing the tyres on Concord, again, very dramatic conclusion. Mm. Um, you know, when they're changing the tyre on Concord and Tegan's rolling along, and he's like, oh, this is like rolling along that tyre in Legopolis." And I thought, why would that? And then I remembered Peter Grimway directed it. Yeah. So he's obviously coming okay. back to his own stuff. Yeah. But the Master is utterly two-dimensional in this. Yeah. And if you didn't have a memory of Amy's portrayal, mm. mm. he would be a complete non-character.
3: Yeah. yeah. He's, he's probably better in the Doomsday Weapon. And again, I think it's potentially because... This really has to serve almost as a, an introduction to the master as well, because this is the first novel featuring the master. So Holt does spend a little bit of time, you know. Joe asks the obvious question: "Oh, who's this master person?" Um, and of course, the doctor then gets to give her the explanation, well, yeah, etc. But yeah, look again. Look, it's a target book, so you're probably not going to get a huge in depth portrayal of the character. But it certainly, I think, it's certainly better than than uh, your two. Yes.
1: Well, I've got nothing really from it, you know. Apart yeah. from, it, when, you know, he's transitioning between Chameleon and, you know, the Master, he just had, yeah. had Chameleon dash Master. I mean, there was only sort of skipped on why, you know, he's after the gas and things like that. Which
2: perhaps reinforces something I think we've all suspected, and that although I think there is a bit of a character arc for the Master in Season 8, I think there is mm. some genuine yeah. attempt to give him some character. For the most part, the Master across Doctor Who's history basically is the actor putting his stamp mm. over the top of it. And Ainley comes in and has a particular character. I think you're right, in Planet of Fire, he's really good. In Survival, he's really good. Uh, Legopolis he's not bad as well when he gets to give that more understated mm. performance. But Ainley becomes the character. Delgado became the character. I mean, the only reason he has a character in Traken is because Jeffrey Beavers desperately tries to give him something with his voice portrayal. Yeah. Um, and, and even John Sim. I mean, the character of the John Sim master is basically just... John Sim doing a David Tennant impression. Yeah. And it's John Sim's personality and portrayal stamping over the top mm. of what is basically a very underwritten character. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And on that note, we're gonna have a bit of a mid-year stock take. Fanwank Awards. Before we get to the big one at the end of the year, have a bit of a kick around and see what tickled our fans over the last six months in terms of anything we've seen that would be deemed as uh, fan wankeray. Might start with Dave's. What have you got there?
2: Look, I had a pick, which I'll get to in a moment, but in the last 48 hours, Doctor Who Twitter has given me a second pick. <laughs> I run around. God bless you. <laughs> that is, my God, there is some self obsessed fan wank out there. Rumours have broken at the time of recording about the last 48, 36 hours that Disney Plus is looking to acquire the rights to stream Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Now, all I've seen here is rumours or in talks, mm-hmm. nothing confirmed, and I've seen various iterations of, is it just what's produced in Doctor Who from now on? Mm-hmm. Is it going back to the extra era, or is it the whole of Doctor Who back from an earthly child? That doesn't seem quite clear. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's very obviously this is a chance for Disney to say, we want another tentpole thing on our service. Yep. We want to be able to say, you know, lots of people buy... Disney Plus for Star Wars, for Marvel, and Doctor Who is probably a natural add-on to that. It is another way for millions of people to see the show. And to me, that's what the streaming world entails. The more people that can see a stream show, the better. Mm. But of course, Doctor Who Twitter has decided that Disney (laughs) is the enemy. Disney now, therefore, is going to have creative control. Disney is going to ensure that these are all straight white men characters that will be acceptable in Florida. You know, I don't think anyone's quite gone down the whole Nazi Superman are our superior <laughs> refer- references. <laughs> well, references. might
1: have got this. <laughs>
2: um, but there's this just sort of like, no, we need to resist this. We need. It's like, guys, a massive worldwide company wants to screen Doctor Who after it's produced. they have having nothing to do with the production. It's just, let's just take the file and upload it so more people can watch it after it screens the BBC. And the fact that that is causing palpitations and aneurysms on Twitter oh. is just a huge level of fanwake in the worst possible way. So that's my runner-up. <laughs> my winner, however, is going to a man that I know you're a big fan of, Mark, and that is Chris Chibnall.
1: Oh, yes. How is young Chris going? Chris
2: Chibnall, who is a fan, yes. gave is a... He? <laughs> well, he did a tell-all article slash interview for Doctor Who magazine oh, yes. a couple of months ago, yes. which, given the chance to extol your love for your mm. time on Doctor Who... Given the chance to explain what you did and why you did it and what it meant to you and how it all worked and, and to give some real positive insight into what you did, it basically read as though, look, guys, I I don't care that much. Um, this was a bit this was a bit of a chore. It was a job. I got paid. Um, let's the just end. let's just all move on. Um, yeah. there there was no plot arc. There there were extra references. There was no big scheme. I just sort of wrote it as I went along. Mm. Um, he admits that the whole Doctor Yaz thing, which look. I think it's a terrible idea because I think that any doctor with any companion is a bad idea. Yeah. But he admits there that, like, yeah, look, we had no plan for that, but a few people on Twitter sort of said it was a good idea, so we're going, yeah, OK, we'll just hint at it. I just think, look, even if that's the way he felt about the series, it is the height of fan to come on and almost sort of beg forgiveness <laughs> for your indifference in the show and to, to try and elicit sympathy for, oh, it was so hard to make and I had to work so, such long hours and you sort of go, you know, you were given the chance to create an era of your favourite show on television and all you've got at the end of it is, well, it was really tough, guys. That, to me, is just fan-wank in, again, the worst possible way. Also
1: unprofessional mm. Mm. as well.
2: It's not Eric Saywood's Starburst levels of unprofessional. No. Um, but, but, again, like, if you want to do that, first of all, wait until your doctor's actually off the screen because mm. this is really all, I think, just tainted the exit for Jodie Whittaker yeah. in, in the worst possible way. But get someone to write it for you. Mm. You know, go along to Richard Marsden and say, mate, I'll give you the ins and outs of my year on the show. You write the book, and then he's got a unbiased and crystal view of mm. how to do it. Yeah. Rather than, I don't know whether Tip Chimble intended it or not, but just this whole woe is me vibe of the mm. piece. Yeah. Really, really, you
1: it, know. It gave the haters the ammunition, really, didn't it? It, it absolutely
2: yeah. did. Yeah. You know, anybody who's been saying that this hasn't been a. Cohesive arc to this era can right. now go well, even the showrunner doesn't think there was, yeah. And so, yeah, look, I think right. Chimble's got his hand on it quite hard on that interview. So, um, <laughs> I think it's fan
1: absolutely. I mean, and they, that's had the, the SSDC con this last couple of days, and yeah. there's no Doctor Who thing at all, at all, especially
2: nothing. around the Jodie exit. There's nothing there, no exclusive
1: clip, no, no, no nothing. I don't think I think it this one's sweeping on the carpet, which
2: is amazing because if you got Shunigatwa... Gatwa. Into Hall H at San Diego, mm. that would have broken the internet. Mm. It would have absolutely broken the internet. And look, maybe there are reasons why it wasn't done. Maybe they're going to do their own launch shortly in the UK. That's fine. But again, watching all of this stuff from Marvel and DC, and you know, Kevin Smith did his big announcement yep. about mm. uh, Masters of the yes. Universe Two. Yep. and he had his panel about. And Will three. Shatner. Yeah, we yes. would have Shatner, and you know Shatner gave his views on yep. modern Star Trek, oh, yes. <laughs> which, which is interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I Look, I, it does feel as though even with RTD coming on board, the show isn't quite getting the publicity it should. I do think when Shindy what comes on board, he's going to bring together an audience that will start to do it. So maybe, maybe just the mm. moment isn't right yet.
1: I think they're just waiting for the, the centenary special to come and go. Yeah, and then that's gone. Full stone. That's yep. gone, and then so basically, full stop. Yep. It's over. (laughs) Let's move it
3: up. Yeah. Speaking of the
2: centenary special, yeah. Can we also just say that like three months of worship to a television station? I don't know if that's okay in the UK, but here is that just BBC wank? Is that just a little bit creepy? A little bit off? I just can't think of Australians like like okay, the ABC turns seventy and everyone goes, "Oh, let's have an article, let's have a week, whatever." But this this worship of the BBC as though it's the City of the Exelons. <laughs> I just find it really bizarre. I mean, it's a great thing. It's made some great TV, look, it's, made I love, great but TV but it's just a TV it's station, it's guys. It's a TV. Look,
1: it's and, a, a know, cultural icon to, to yeah. some of the UK, but yeah, I, yeah. I do agree. I think, you
2: know, I remember when the BBC turned 50, uh, it was just basically a clip show in the afternoon. Yeah, and, you know, look, I fully can see that in between covering up for various sex offenders and pedophiles, the BBC's <laughs> produced a lot
3: of good work. Well, maybe that's to make you forget all that. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> did you did you yeah. have a free zone. Young Richard, what's going on with you? Well, look, I'm sorry, I... You
1: took the easy option, didn't you?
3: You I didn't did have any a... research, you just went the easy route, didn't you? Well, it's very hard when they send it to my inbox. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I have gone for the obvious target again, which was Big Finish. I'm on their mailing list, and I'm sorry, they just make it so easy with the stuff <laughs> they send out. A few days ago, I received an email in my... <laughs> In Was box. it personalised dear Richard? No, it wasn't. Oh, um, Yeah, I got an email uh, from Big Finish inviting me uh, to pre-order a new series featuring Rani and Clyde from the Sarah Jane Adventures, and I
0: thought... <laughs>
3: <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde? or oh, oh, Rani and Clyde, okay, and thought, yeah. Look, I'm sure... Look, I haven't heard the stories, and I'm sure they're very good, but I don't know how much more niche you can get, really... <laughs> <laughs> when you're doing a spin-off from a spin-off is this big finish doing Laverne and Shirley I... <laughs> oh, I I actually was waiting for them to recast like Elizabeth Slayton or something to be honest but to get oh, Sadie Miller know, in it, there is, that, yeah exactly yeah I'm sorry look I have listened to a lot of big finish and look I found some of it quite enjoyable but I'm uh-huh. sorry that is just way too niche for me I don't know that anybody much who watched the Sarah Jane adventures would get on board with this because I really don't know who it's audience is people who grew up watching Sarah Jane and now, I want to relive the magic in audio? I but it's not
2: even as though it's the adult characters from Sarah Jane. And look, we acknowledge at Liz Slade and sadly did pass yeah. away. it's the kids as now adults. And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that gives me nostalgia
3: vibes. No, no and that's no. the thing. And look, the series is long gone now. I I don't know. I saw this and I thought, really, unless you've got an absolutely A plus knockout story, I don't see the why. To be honest.
2: So
1: you didn't pre-order
2: it then? Uh, funnily enough, no. Okay. And presumably they haven't got Tommy Knight along to actually be the what Luke Smith character. He's you know, been recast. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say he's a surprise guest cast member maybe in the third story or something. Yeah. But no, I did see from the release, because they did actually put out a little press release about it, the lady who played Ronnie's mum is back. Oh, yeah. So even more niche. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> Look, I saw a few of the Serajania Adventures... I thought it was really well made. It was a really good kids' program. Yeah. I and really respect it. It's Likewise,
3: just, if it had been on in the afternoons when I was about nine or ten, so absolutely I, I, I absolutely would have got on board with it. But, but I was twenty something when it came out. Yeah, yeah. 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 I and, still enjoyed watching you it. You know, it, and look, I watched a few of them again with with my son. He sort of we started watching it probably around he was been about seven or eight. By the time he was nine or ten, he'd lost interest in it. I don't think he's going to be jumping on board for this either.
1: <laughs> I mean, the Sarah Jane Adventures at the time had more reference for the classic series mm. and. The new series did at the time anyway, so uh, that yeah, that is true. Well, well, maybe I'll...
3: they need to get an appearance from Matt Smith or something to bolster the ratings, but <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, I don't mind that episode either. No, they could do a
2: crossover with class.
1: Yes, oh, there
3: would be one they'll do the big <laughs> finish to be finished, do class. They've done it, have they? Yeah, okay, scratch that. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, crossover with well, class. you know, they
1: bought, bought the rights to the neighbors, don't you? Who no have big
3: finish? Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But when they do, you hit it here first. Yeah, that's right. You hit it here first. Ramsey Street will be uh, a recording. Jason and Kylie. Yeah. (laughs) Very good, Richard. Thank you for that. Mark, do you have anything? It might surprise you. I do, and it might surprise you. I've got more than one. Unlike Richard, though, who made a very lazy effort and just did Big Finish by email, I actually went on the website and been taking oh, so notes all so, week. You
3: did some research from their <laughs> I did some research, so uh, <laughs> I went on the internet and I found this. <laughs> I found this, and
1: I've got some a couple of awards here. Of course, uh, this is the best mid-year cover version award. It goes to the upcoming Big Finish uh, A Kaleidoscope Adventure, and I'll read you the the, the press blurb here. Journey to the third Doctor's era of psychedelic fashion, Buffon hair, and 70s gadgetry in an action-packed full-cast audio drama. Of course, it started with Tim Treloar, Sadie Miller, and John Coleshaw. So again, the main uh, actors of the era are long gone. The replacements are now touted as, uh, as the
2: new originals. Now, I saw this come across my Twitter feed, and the thing that kind of grabbed me about it is, look... If you cross the rubric on that, yes, we're recasting classic actors. Okay, look, not for me, but clearly there's some demand. That's fine, whatever, go down that path. Mm-hmm. But the cover is John Pertwee, Lisslade <laughs> and Nick Courtney. At least acknowledge that you're not... Come on, guys. That's, exact, and that's, Come a, on. that's exactly where I sort
1: of get... Don't put the likenesses on the cover when they're clearly not there.
2: That does feel a little
1: bit exploitative. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's another cover version, which isn't of a Doctor Who um, variety, but I'm going to read it to you anyway um shilling and sixpence are back on the case the crime solving duo embark on a new series of murder mysteries and a long-awaited second shilling and sixpence investigates box set from big Finish originals does that not sound like Sapphire (laughs) and still to you uh the best should have ignored this one award goes to the uh fugitive doctor adventures a brand new series of full cast audio dramas for the fugitive doctor played by Joe martin now they could have completely ignored that whole fugitive doctor (laughs) thing like a lot of people have uh, but no, they're getting on the on the wagon there and uh, starting to churn out some
2: new adventures with her. Did
1: anybody like the fugitive of Doctor Who? Did anybody really enjoy the
2: performance? I thought her performance was very good, yeah. and I thought the story she was in was very interesting. But again, it worked really well in one story, and then all the sort of the the callbacks to her, I think, have been. Completely wasted and pointless.
1: Mm. And do you think she should be the, the pre-Hartwell
3: Doctor? Probably give it another year or so. Oh, i have put, a whole new yeah. version of Cloning they the Wipe it anyway. Look, yeah.
2: as, as I've said before, the copy of The Aztecs on my shelf doesn't change because of anything that anybody does in the modern mm. series. So <laughs> I, I don't care. I, mm. I genuinely don't. It's, it's like a telemovie making The Doctor half-human for half an hour. Mm. Mm. Look, that sort of came where We all went, Huh? And then it was just sort of quietly
3: forgotten yeah. and we all yeah. just moved on. Yeah. Or, or, or Clara telling Hartnell to take that TARDIS because of the directional unit stacker. Yeah. Well done. Well done, Stephen.
1: The best mid-year Doctor Who equivalent of Don't Mention His Name award ghost. I'll read you this ad. Okay? Yeah, well and, you, work. and you tell me what you think is missing. Up to 50% off sale on Torchwood adventures. Get a great deal on selected Torchwood audio dramas featuring Gareth David Lloyd as Yanto
3: Jones. Barrowman Freeman. I did not realise that Yanto <laughs> Jones was the main particular character mm. in Torchwood. Well, he isn't the ones they do, because they've done one with Eve Miles as well. I know, but the thing is that they're basically saying that like, Torchwood, there's no mention of John Barrowman. Look,
2: if they want to do a spin-off series starring, starring Yanto, and there are Torchwood fans who want to do that, look, I, I know that he was a very popular character, I thought he was a very charismatic actor if they want to do spin-offs with him that's fine but again guys let's be honest about what you're doing and do the eanto adventures don't call it torchwood but we haven't got captain jack
1: well we have got captain
2: jack we don't want to talk about it you know what i mean like he's being recast at least from existence oh could you imagine if they recast him oh, <laughs> would go absolutely spare like like it's one thing to just sort of like oh jack's off on another mission jack's not here today like yeah. okay that's fine but like, if they recast him, barrymore would go absolutely Oh yeah. he will be crying. he will be
3: crying <laughs> oh, more right. than that. Has yeah. he come out and said he should be in the 100th anniversary special? Oh, I think he has. Probably, I think he's desperate for any job.
1: But I just when I saw Torchwood, I instantly went for, like, oh,
3: who's John barrymore's name?
1: But uh, obviously, John barrymore and Big Finish uh, are no longer talking. The most obscure character mashup award, even for a Big Finish. The, the Warmaster Escapes From Reality. A mashup between Dorian Gray and the Warmaster. I don't know how that would work. Dave, I would like you to buy it and have a listen to <laughs> that back to me, please, because I have no interest.
2: A mash-up between Dorian Gray... Yes,
3: yeah. and the War Master, Right. Which is Derek Jacoby. Yes. Is it Derek Jacoby, or is it, it another is? No, they haven't recast yeah. him yet. Yes, he right. died. Okay. So,
2: but, yeah, give me time. And I'll try to remember who, who plays Dorian Dorian Gray, because it's somebody of note, like, or it's somebody that I'm sure I, uh, I recognise. He, he might be famous, I don't know. And
1: that was Fan rank of the Mid-Year Awards. <laughs> Before we go, we've all taken hold of our season twenty-two box sets, yep. and we're all happy with the condition that they arrived in. I, I was, yes, yes, yeah, yes, I was as well. I just say to Zavi and the other mobs, God's sake, spend that little bit extra at the beginning of the distribution process and package it properly. <laughs> Post to people then are getting very, very angry about the battered-up boxes and then offering a reduced rate on the, on a refund. I'll be honest, I've only watched a couple of documentaries, but you guys have been sort of going in deep into the box sets. Your
2: thoughts? on the season and the box set in general, please. So we'll start with Dave first. Look, a couple of quick points. I think that the extra special effects on Time Lash have been done very well. Yeah. And that does make the story a little bit more watchable, which, let's face it, we're all watching for Paul Darrow.
3: Indeed. Um, oh, yes. and,
2: and I turned <laughs> off again once Paul Darrow was killed because nothing comes so there But he did actually, I think, elevate the story. In there. there were some quite he, good he effects did. in there, so yeah. that, that's quite good. Um, I will say I'm not a particular fan of Season 22, There is some good stuff in there. I quite like Varos. I do enjoy Paul Darrow. I found Two Doctors. Every time I watch that, it drags a little bit more. And I used to really enjoy Two Doctors, but it hasn't aged very well. I'm not a fan of Revelation, but I get that's a very... You either get what it's doing or you don't. Um, And that's fine. I I accept that. I've never got the hang of Mark of the Rani. And here, again, I just really struggled to get through that one. Um, So, look, it's not a great season. I think that when you remember Doctor Who in the Purwi era and the Hinchcliffe era was actually big budget. It wasn't like big special budget. It wasn't like Claudius or Brighton Revisited or something no. like that. But it actually was quite a good budget. The effects were the best the BBC could do. It was high profile. No. I was watching season 22 and just going, this looks cheap. It feels underwritten. Yeah. I love Colin. He's a lovely guy. We've spoken to him several times, Richard, you we and have. I. have. He's a lovely guy. He is really struggling in those first stories to really get the hold of the Doctor. Mm. I think by the time you get to Vervoids particularly, he's really good. And that sort of gentler, more fun Colin, Sixth Doctor, is really good in season 23. I was watching some of this and just going, he's not fun to watch. The hard work. Watching some of the uh, behind-the-sofa stuff was interesting mm. and some of the reactions were... We're very good. I'm very much looking forward to the behind the sofa for Twin Dilemma when that comes out, because (laughs) just how some of those people are going to react to um, some of those scenes. Mm. As for the docos, I must admit, some people have been very blown away by them. Yes, seeing Michael Gray in long form was interesting, but I actually didn't think there was that much more to say about this era. That was actually the point I
3: haven't. Look, I haven't really dived into the, the box set beyond a few cursory watches of some of the new effects and stuff. I was actually going to raise a point with the docos. Is there really anything much more to say?
2: Eric Saywood has basically vented his spleen in Nearest depth to time. anyone who will listen for the last 20 years. Yeah.
3: But, I mean, you've also had stuff like the Marsden book. You've had all the stuff on the other DVDs. You must surely be getting to a point now where th- there really is nothing left to say about...
2: That, that's right. As I say, Eric Sayward has vented his spleen out length mm. to anyone who will listen <clears> for the last 20 years. Colin is very accessible. Mm. He's remarkably honest and frank. And I think he's put himself on the record in a lot of depth a lot of yeah. times. Nicola, less so. But the other thing is, as you said, we've had the Richard Marsden book. Mm. And there are times I'm watching these docos or watching Colin on behind the sofa and they're all talking about how lovely it was and what was going mm. on. And Nicola particularly, she'll say, oh, it was, fun, it was lovely. It's like, I've read your interview with Richard no. Marsden. You yeah. were not having a good time. No. You clearly were not getting on with JNT and he was mm-hmm. not happy with you. We hadn't got to the levels you know, later on where JNT's spitting in her face. No, yeah. Clearly DOCOs we now know are quite sanitized. Yeah. Um, with the exception of Eric Saywood, who is, you know, pretty pretty forthright all the time and, <sighs> and Michael Graham and Jonathan Powell as well. But yep. again, they're not saying anything we didn't know. So they're very, very sanitized. And yeah, I, I just think there isn't a lot more that needs to be said. And frankly, the other big point is that J and T's now been sadly of, for the better part of twenty years. Yeah. And he can't go on record and defend himself either. No, so, so you're
3: probably relying on those like that new production diaries book, perhaps maybe to get some of his side of the story. No, you point. won't. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the thing. And, and for the content it just on actually, that, yeah, it just yeah, actually, yeah you just but that's not going to redeem way. him either. No, so actually, no, no. And again,
2: yeah. to put the context out there, season eighteen is my top two or three favorite season of Doctor Whoever. Season 21 will be in the top five of my favourite seasons ever. So mm. there's a lot of j stuff that I really, really like. Mm. But looking at season 22 now, and yes, we've got the nostalgia for it. And, you know, you mm. can watch Attack of the Cybermen and, and enjoy it for what it is and all the rest of it. And you can watch Time Lash for Paul Darrow knowing that, you know, that the show is safe from being cancelled yes. because of this. But I was watching at this time and just thinking it looks... Cheap and it looks it does look dated. It yeah, looks it dated. Um, it's not quite that'll do, but it is very much a case of, you know, just
3: the The, the, the ATM...
2: requirement for the
1: suspension of yeah.
3: disbelief is getting it, much higher. The criticism
1: is. at JT level that Graham Williams around the shoddiness and everything like that, you know, especially for season 17, is it's basically mm. brought forward to season 22. Well, I, I think. At least
3: 17, at least you get a bit of fun with it. I, I, mean, I think probably by 22, look, the, the fact that Doctor Who is low budget is now really really painfully obvious. Yeah. yeah. And there is that they this is the best they can do, but it is now no nowhere near good enough. And, and um, compare
2: it with season 18. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which, which looks fantastic. Mm. Like I, I remember getting the season 18 Blu-rays and putting them on just going, this just looks good. lush. It
3: mm. does. It looks good. Probably it's also not a great season, but I remember when I saw twenty two for the first time, because mm. it was we would slipped back to as We were saying in the, the tape swapping thing earlier. We'd slipped back to about 12 months behind the UK. They got it in January. We got it just after Christmas. So, of course, when I watched it 22 for the first time, I'd had eight or nine months of looking in DWM, DWB, etc., where they were just panning it. You know, I didn't like Colin. T has to go. The stories are rubbish. So, of course, when I first watched it, I probably in my view was a little coloured by all this stuff I'd read. Looking back at them now, I mean, look, I liked Tack when I was probably a 15-year-old. I, yeah. I, yeah, now yeah. now, now its problems that, yeah. really stand out. Yeah. Yeah. I quite like Baros. I'd be honest, I've never liked Mark of the Rani or The Two Doctors, really. I mean, okay, yeah, it was cool to see Trout and, but and Fraser Hines, but... I've never really got two doctors. I'd be honest, I'd watch Paul Darrow read the phone book. So, um, look, I... And it was, really. It was yeah, like and, lash, and yeah. look, so look, I actually... Time Lash is... is but it's fun. Just for Paul. Yeah, exactly. You know, it is, but it yes. was... Funnily, this time when I was looking at it, it was, where's Paul Darrow? Get Paul Darrow back on the screen. And, um,
2: and again, some of that early stuff in Time Lash where you've got the original mail and, yeah. and there's sort of you know the subterfuge
3: of yeah. what's going on. And, and then and they have to divert the power from the hospital and that sort yeah. of stuff. There's yeah. actually
2: some good ideas going on. In there. Yeah, there. It's is. not too bad, but... Look, it's not a good story, and I think that Paul Darrow's uh, very strong performance <laughs> highlights even more some of the uh,
1: deficiencies.
2: Other performances. Yes. Mm. Um, I don't know what drug the person playing Mina is on, but she's clearly heavily sedated. <laughs> um, the guy who plays Darrow's Offsider, who I've seen in yep. other stuff, and he's a perfectly yep. capable actor. I don't know what was going on, but
3: Bored, I have been loyal to you.
2: Oh, there's some bad stuff in there. Yeah,
3: it is. And And, and look, I'm probably not as big a fan of Revelation as Rob is. And at the time, look, I was actually because I'm a huge Young Ones fan, and at the time was like, "Hey, cool, it's a Lexy sale." I actually don't mind Revelation. That at least is watchable.
2: But again, watching it back again, look, look. as I say, I, I don't quite get what's going on in Revelation. It's sort of well, for Well, nothing me.
3: happens, really, for the first episode. Because the Doctor, really, the, he spends his entire first episode out wandering around in the snow talking about Arthur <laughs> That
2: That's right. And then uh, it, it, it's up to the other Undertaker guys to call in the and, other And that's other, the other thing, darlings. and he
3: doesn't do anything. But I think there's enough going on in the other parts of the story to keep it moving.
2: There is, but my problem is that it's all disparate. Mm. So, like Alexi Sale does some really fun things, but it doesn't feel at all related to the rest no. of the show. No. Um, the stuff with um, William Gaunt and Eleanor Bron. Is really quite entertaining, Mm. but it feels like it's on a completely different TV show show (laughs) to to, to what's going on with um, Tasson Beaker and um, Clive Swift.
3: Tasson Beaker is probably the low point, but
2: and and look, I love that fandom has now evolved to the point where there are people who do unironically love Tasson Beaker, and look, good on you if you do. (laughs) But like, she is not a good actress. Uh, Clive Swift think he's very much just taking the check and just doesn't want to be there. Yeah. If he's interviewing DWM, sort of... Oh, yes. Any, any time later, <laughs> like, oh, is it well regarded? Is it? Oh, whatever. Yeah. I don't think he wanted to be there. So I think that... Look, I, I get why people like Revelation. Rob, I get why you like Revelation. I just think it's... a. It's a mess, frankly.
1: I think the docos... I watched the Colin Baker one, which I actually really enjoyed because there was, there was parts of that which he never really sort of talked about. And obviously, you know, with the death of his son. I found that quite moving, actually, listening to that. And, you know, he loves the character and everything like that. Just yes. the way he was treated was terrible. He very and proud of the fact he played yeah. the Doctor.
3: Yeah. Yes, yes and he is. Uh,
1: the one with Nicola Bryant... I thought was actually quite good as well. Some of the the, the obviously she had to put up with on on the set was the shenanigans of J and T was pretty bad as well. But did um, you feel
2: they were both pulling their punches?
1: Absolutely. Are. Nicola Bryant mentioned about you know what happened with Fixers on Taran and, and they got Janet Fielding in, and then you know Nicola then had to go onto Twitter afterwards to sort of apologise for dragging Janet into it. But that's what happened because I remember at the time it said Nicola Bryant's gone on holiday, she said she couldn't do it. Mm. Now you know the reason why she couldn't do it. I
3: remember seeing Mark Strickson at an event. Where he said, "Look, these days he has to be so much more careful about what he says." Mm. Years ago, and I remember when we had him at the, the yeah. club here in Melbourne, he told us some quite interesting stories, well, particularly
2: back in '88 when yeah. uh, you know there was no internet, there was no reporting, like,
3: and, and you know, and there might have been one camera filming it. And, probably two people got copies. Yeah and that's right. On, on the other side of the planet. But I remember when he came out here in, in the two thousands and he said, well these days, look, he has to be so much more careful because you know there's people with phones recording and you know he says anything vaguely contentious, it's on social media within, you know, ten minutes of him saying it. Can't only assume that would flow through to the docos as well, because they're yeah. going on mass market products. And so, and, and
2: I, I get that and I respect that. And and I understand that if you're being interviewed by Richard Marsden for a tell-all book, Mm. there is a level of removal Mm. from you as a person Mm. that you can go, this isn't me telling it, it's me telling it via Richard in a context that's being laid out and people are reading it, they're taking the time and they're investing in it. So so I get that that is different. I can forgive the fact, but we have to accept the fact that we now watch these docos Mm. or watch these behind the sofas or whatever and you go, look, guys, I know that's not really how you felt Mm. and I know that there's a whole lot more that was going on, so... Are you really just giving me a performance here?
1: Yeah, yeah. And Michael Gray, I thought, was a complete performance. Rewriting history along the way as
2: normal. And on that note, I mean, we've we've been and seen um, Davison and Janet Fielder when, when they came yep, out the yeah. last time, and they now give a performance. It is yeah, very, very is. clear. Yeah. They, they take the check, they come out on stage, and they have an act and they put on a performance. They clearly have the lines they do. As a Heinz approach. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They, they have the lines they do. They have the jokes they obviously yeah, do every time. Sure. They have the yeah. banter they do every time. You know, they have the Matthew Waterhouse crack. Yeah. And it's enough to sort of go, oh, yeah, cool, we're seeing the entertainment sort of thing. But it is clearly rehearsed. It is clearly sanitised. Yeah. It's a performance. And it's the same stories. And it's the same stories. Yeah. And and look, that's fine. I get why you can't come out and tell the whole truth. Or if you did, you know, you have to wait till everyone involved is dead because the dead can't sue. Yeah. Uh, like, I get that. But... I'm not sitting here watching these docos going, oh, my God, I've learned so much now and I've yeah. seen the real story. It's like, no, I've read the real story. This is a sanitized version. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to have the Blu-rays, to have them all as a nice new set. Mm-hmm. They're cleaned up well. The new special yeah. effects are good. Yeah. Luck. And, you know, I enjoy the behind the sofas. I, I, I didn't when they first came out. Yeah. They've really worked out how to do them well. Yeah. So, look, I'm not knocking the sets. They're great sets. Yeah. But let's not pretend that there is some bakery. Yeah. Involved in all yeah, of
1: this. I, I mean, that's the last of the, the contentious seasons, really. I mean, you might get season twenty and twenty-one. There might be a bit of maybe Davis would be interesting yeah. to see some of his thoughts, particularly around when the uh, issues with Terminus and
2: Terminus is probably the one we we hang out for. Our twin dialogue. But even I think something like season fifteen. Which, look, it's got some good stories in it, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think it is often seen as sort of the weaker. One yeah, probably the transition period. I guess it's the, it's the yeah. transition period. It's where the budget issues and inflation yep. really starts to take hold. So you've got stuff like Invisible Enemy. You've got Underworld, um, which are you know are weak stories. Invasion of Time. I enjoy, but you know you can see the production problems in that very very obviously. Yeah. Who's going to do the slightly harder edge doco mm. on that? Saying you know what went wrong, where things weren't working. It's all going to be oh well you know it was the nineteen seventies we all had a great time. Let's face most of the contributors have passed on since then anyway. You know, it'll be nice to see those cleaned up, it'll be nice to see the reactions and get a little bit more, but and then you go back to the 60s, and well, there's not many people alive now to tell stories that we don't really know. Most most of the writers are now gone. Half the companions are gone, both the doctors have gone. Yeah. All the producers have gone. Yeah. I love these sets. I love having them cleaned up. I keep saying that. I'm not I'm not knocking the sets. Yeah. But let's be a little bit more honest about. Just how much we can get out of some of these mm. docos now, and maybe reset yeah. the expectations of it. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys.
1: Dave, thanks again for having us today. It's uh, Camp David. Richard, thank you for turning up as well. This is great. Fun. Yeah, it's been, been a good. lot of fun. There's interesting topics. I think we chewed the fat on, and
2: uh... no, always a pleasure to host you, Mark, and always fun to do a forty-two to doomsday. Now, Mark, Richard, and I are going to stay back and do a spacefall episode on Dawn of the Gods after this. Would you like to join us? Tempting as that does sound, um, <laughs> I think I have to wash
1: what's little remaining of my hair. So, uh, but I look, I look forward to the edit, and I look forward to uh, digesting it. So, spaceballs back up, obviously, in money. Yes, it is. Yes. We're
3: actually not far off dropping our discussion on aftermath which keeps off series three. Very good. Um, so this, uh, this is about three or four behind that in the pipeline, but it'll be an interesting discussion, I think. Well, it's good to have you both back on the feeds talking Blake Seven.
1: So I don't have to. But we'll be back at Christmas time, won't we, guys? We will. Yes. And uh, Rob and I will be back next month talking about Doctor Who and stuff. (laughs) I'm really selling it, I know. To wrap up this uh, wonderful session, I've been Mark. I've been Dave. I'm Richard.
0: Keep
1: punching! Chris Chibnall in the
0: bowl. <laughs> You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 doomsday at gmail.com. We can be registered at facebook.com forward slash 42 to doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to doomsday. Please check out our blog 42todoomsday.wordpress.com where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.
1: To Robin Richard, congratulations. Your Messiah has returned to the fold.
3: So join in the chorus and sing it one and all. Join in. North Melbourne is the team that plays to win for you and me. So join in the chorus and sing it. To wait for you and me